Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner. With me, Eason. And me, Bex. And today, our episode is all about The General. Yes, but before we get into it, uh, we want to touch on a couple of episodes that we've spoken about in our last two podcasts, because we've had some emails and tweets from people with some interesting bits of information about them. Yeah, so the first one is about the episode Free For All. Now, Alan Stevens, who was our guest on the podcast, he got in touch to actually tell us that one interpretation of number two's tick-tick expression at the end of the episode when she's uh, slapping number six is really about him behaving like clockwork now Mm. he's been brainwashed i hadn't thought that at all and i'm not sure that's the official interpretation one of many or alan's interpretation but i think it's really fantastic because it really fits with the whole thing and it was strange because we couldn't work out what it meant but that's a really fitting way that you could see that happening yeah, and we got a tweet from John about the schizoid man with reference to an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, of which there is also an episode called The Schizoid Man. And it turns out that there is a role in that episode that was initially intended to be played by Patrick McGowan. Yeah, I think it's a character called Dr. Ira Graves. And it's a story that involves the crew of the Enterprise going down to this planet and this Graves character dies and he transplants his consciousness into the mind of Data. Then when Data comes aboard the Enterprise, they realise something's up and actually it's Graves inside him. Which I think is kind of interesting because, one, it's it's strange to actually think of Patrick McGowan in an episode of Star Trek. (laughs) But also, although the title would have referenced the schizoid man, in a strange way... Is it not more of a reference to an episode like Do Not Forsake Me and My Darling? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And staying on the subject of the schizoid man, um, we mentioned in our episode that you can see a glimpse of a copy of the Taylor newspaper hey, uh, where there's a headline that seems to end in something like Further or Another. And we got an email from Rick Davey from The Mutual who pointed out that the copy of the Tally Ho is the same edition that you see in A, B and C, where number 14, the scientist, is reading outside the old people's home and she's holding a copy of the tally-ho and the headline is, is number two fit for further term? Which puts into question how the schizoid man fits in with A, B and C in the running order. And that's kind of a suitable way to segue into the general because <laughs> I think, I can't remember now, but I'm pretty certain we did talk about the potential episode order relating a b and c to the general yeah you'll know that the number two in the general is colin gordon who appeared in the episode a b and c and although the general aired at least in the uk broadcast order several episodes after a b and c there are several things which actually place the episode before abc And indeed, another aspect of it is the fact that the title of the episode refers to the general, which we'll get to later, who is a character who has been referenced by uh, Anton Rogers, number two, at the end of The Schizoid Man. Yeah. So it seems like the general has to take place after The Schizoid Man in order for the reference to the general to make sense. But that it should take place before A, B and C, because in the intro to the general, you get Colin Gordon's number two doing the where am I in the village exchange. And he refers to himself as the new number two. 
Whereas in A, B and C, he just refers to himself as number two, I am number two, rather than the new number two. And additionally, the way that A, B and C ends with Colin Gordon's number two being thoroughly defeated and the red telephone of doom going off in his office, which uh, seems to signal that he's had his last chance to crack number six. It would make it awkward to think that then suddenly he's back again and he's back in charge. Yeah, I think a lot of aspects of the performance certainly place Colin Gordon's number two in the general ahead of his appearance in A, B and C. And I think Certainly that's how the uh, production went as well. So they they shot it in this order. You know, we have all these discussions continually about the episode order, but I think this is one of the ones where it does seem to be the fact that the general logically would come before A, B and C. Yeah, we, we joked before about the uh, milk drinking that <laughs> Colin Gordon did in A, B and C. He's constantly drinking milk to settle his nerves. Maybe he's got a bit of an ulcer. Whereas in the general, you only really see him drink milk once. Yeah, so he's gone from having one glass of milk in the general to gulping it down in A, B and C, <laughs> which is perhaps the strongest evidence yet that a difference in milk consumption um, <laughs> may be the best way of working out what order of episodes the prisoner was meant to be watched in. Yeah, so with that in mind, we're going to jump into discussing the general. Uh, as usual, we're going to go through the episode and then at the end, we've got an interview with film director Alex Cox who wrote a new book about the prisoner last year, I Am Not a Number. And The General is an episode that he finds particularly interesting. We had a great chat with him about what he makes of the episode and how it fits into the overall narrative of The Prisoner. But for now, let's crack on with The General. This is an announcement from The General's Department. Will all students taking the three-part history course please return to their dwellings immediately? The professor will be lecturing in approximately 30 minutes. So the usual opening credits, but for the first time in a couple of episodes, we actually have the number two, doing the call and response bit with Patrick Magoo. So it's actually Colin Gordon doing the maniacal laugh at the very end. Yeah, it's a very strange maniacal laugh, though. <laughs> it's, it's not very menacing. <laughs> it's the laugh of a man who knows that his episode is being shown out of order. <laughs> <laughs> um, but critically, as we said, uh, he does introduce himself as the new number two, mm. which is the first bit of evidence that puts this episode upstream of A, B and C. Mm -hmm. So it's directed by Peter Graham Scott, and the credits say that it's written by Joshua Adam, but this was a pseudonym for Lewis Greifer. And he picked the pseudonym by using the names of his two sons. And interestingly, he was inspired to write this particular episode because he was very frustrated at the form of schooling that his sons were receiving at school and the teaching methods and the way everything seemed to be rote learning and taking the fun out of school. Who'd have thought it, having watched this episode? <laughs> So we open with a really nice kind of overhead shot of the village. And it's one of the first episodes in a while where they're clearly using up a lot of stock footage they have of uh, Port Marion. Yeah, because actually a lot of this is filmed on a soundstage, yeah. isn't it? There's not actually that much filmed at Port Marion other than um, footage that you could probably have slotted into any episode. But number six is hanging out at the cafe, uh, having a cup of coffee by the looks of it. I don't know where he gets his work units from. He never seems to do anything. <laughs> But there's a poster on the wall behind him of the face of who we will learn is the professor saying, it can be done, trust me. And this rather sinister looking black and white picture of the professor staring out of it. Yeah, and at a table uh, opposite him, 
is a guy who's staring at number six. He's wearing uh, a pipe blazer as well. This one's uh, got light blue piping rather than white piping. And it's John Castle, who um, is playing a character who is called number 12 in this, based on his badge. And I know we're going to be prattling on a lot about the episode order here, but it's interesting that this follows the schizoid man, where indeed there already was a notable number 12 in the form of Flapjack Charlie, (laughs) who uh, was the guy who had a similar appearance to number six and was being used to switch places with him in order to uh, convince six that he wasn't six, that he was 12 and he was observing six, who was actually played by 12. (laughs) Yes. 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 You got that right. Uh, Which is a bit confusing because later on this number 12 says that he's been around for a while. But he clearly can't have been 12 the whole time. Yeah, I'm not sure how much we should take into account all of the numbers and all the badges. But it is interesting that... I can understand all the extras turning up and having random numbers. But it's strange that they would choose to have certain numbers being used again for key characters. And at least in The Schizoid Man, there was an idea of 12 being relevant. Because there was the idea of doubles, and then we have 6, 12, and 24. So here, I just wonder if they thought it's a good number. <laughs> but then we get an announcement over the tannoy, and it's not the dulcet tones of Fenella Fielding this time. Yeah, it's... Well, it's a man. They're American. Yeah. And it's just strange that although the sound is coming over the tannoy, as it usually would in an episode like this, it's just jarring that there's no mention of why it's changed. It's almost like something fundamental has changed either in terms of the village itself or in terms of the point in time in the story when we're seeing this happen because it it just seems very out of place this episode in one respect which is you have that jarring change that kicks everything off and the fact that all of a sudden there is this thing which we'll learn about in the episode called speed learn which just seems to involve absolutely everyone in the village and it's (laughs) never been mentioned before and it's never mentioned again yeah, it just seems very odd that it seems to be this event that just drapes over the village for this one episode and then mm. it's gone again. Yeah, it, he does make for a very kind of bright and breezy announcer. It's almost like it's a, an advert, a sort of cheerful advert for Speedlearn. And he announces that all the students who are on the history course should return to their dwellings immediately <laughs> because the lecture is going to begin. And one notable thing I thought was interesting with all of the uh, people who we see in the cafe as well is that like in free-for-all although obviously not for the same reasons uh, this is another appearance of the uh, rosettes Mm -hmm. so there they were used in the elections but here you have the rosettes everyone has which contain a picture of the professor on them yeah so everyone starts clearing out of the cafe um, as this announcement goes on which is an announcement from the general's department Mm -hmm. Um, rather sinisterly and all the other people at the cafe are leaving apart from number six who asked for another coffee but even the waiter is leaving and they're closing the cafe because absolutely everybody is going off for this this speed learn course Uh, and number six asks him about it and he replies this elderly waiter replies that you know you're never too old to learn Mm. that's what the general says and then responds with this phrase which seems to take the place of be seeing you which is good luck with your exams yeah i think that and various iterations of it just appear throughout the episode again it's a it's like a fundamental change in 
the way the village works uh, which takes place. But I do like that catchphrase and as we'll find out after this episode recap and review, uh, I think it's what Alex Cox likes to use a lot these days because he thinks <laughs> that BCM is a bit overused. <laughs> but one thing that strikes me about this phrase, you know, best of luck in your exams or whatever iteration it is, is that as we learn, none of the people doing these exams require any luck because they've already had their only questions and answers that are necessary imprinted on them. So there's there's no luck involved. But everyone's still wishing each other luck, mm. even though it's it's basically a, an exercise in repetition that can't go wrong for anyone taking part. So the waiter clears off, and number six starts to wander off, and comes across another one of these new posters, which reads, 100% entry, 100% pass. Speed learn a three-year course in three minutes. It can be done, trust me. It's all very sinister. But also it it implies that wherever this idea has come from, everyone's automatically enrolled in it. Yeah. Like seemingly against their will. And I suppose that's the nature of the brainwashing aspect as well. But it's weird that it just seems that everyone is part of it and they can't opt out of it either. Yeah. It's when you finally discover what the nature of it is, it makes it even more sinister that you can't say, Hmm. I don't want to take part. So then he gets approached by number 12, who asks him if he believes that this is possible. Uh, and number six replies that you know nothing is impossible in this place because we've seen the village do weirder things. And number 12 is being really cryptic. He's sort of saying, oh, you should, you should enrol. We'd find it very interesting. Professor's interesting. It seems to be not entirely clear whose side he's on or what exactly it is that he wants. Yeah, it's unusual again because although Six is a character who never really trusts anyone he strikes up this conversation with Twelve or rather vice versa but he's quite open with the fact that he doesn't want to be there Mm. um, in the village he's you know he's he's openly hostile about the fact that he wants to escape that's what he's thinking of it's interesting to think about whether Six believes that 12 is genuinely reciprocating a desire to work together to get some escape planned. In some ways, 12 is a really interesting character in this because he's very ambiguous here. Hmm. It's um, He doesn't seem to be, as some characters do in preceding episodes, an agent of the village who is designed to infiltrate the world of Six and then ultimately turn the tables on him in some way and you know, reveal what he's doing. Here, he does seem to be in some way disenfranchised with the way the village operates. Yeah, because when Six asks him who he is, he replies, I'm a cog in the machine, Hmm. Um, which is an interesting choice of words, given what we'll find out later on about who the general actually is. But he's clearly someone who is within, embedded within the administration of the village, but who is unhappy with something somehow that's going on that would make him potentially reach out to someone as troublesome as number six. And it's all the more striking that he is so openly distrustful of the way the village operates, given that this is an episode which involves everyone being brainwashed to believe <laughs> something, and yet he's not part of it. Hmm. Um, he's clearly one of the people on, on the other side. He's on the, you know, he's he's one of the administration people in the village. So it's 
interesting that he must disagree with the way the village is operating here. That again puts a spin on whether he wants to help Six for the sake of you know Six trying to escape, or he actually wants to have the village exposed in some way. Um, there's like an ulterior motive to helping Six because he knows that Six might be able to, you know, do what Six always says, which is go away and then come back and burn it to the ground. <laughs> and then Six notices a helicopter flying overhead, which usually means trouble, and there's some kind of chaos happening on the beach. There's sirens, there's mini-mokes going around, and someone who we recognise as the professor from the posters is being chased across the beach, but not by an angry mob, but by a sort of cheering, over-enthusiastic mob yeah. trying to track him down. So it's a, a weird, weird chase scene. And I like the fact that uh, 12 refers to the professor as absent-minded <laughs> in an episode which is basically about people you know, in a literal sense, having lost control of their own senses by mm. virtue of being brainwashed into thinking other things. Yeah. So all these things he's saying like that and a cog in the machine, it's almost like he's starting to subtly drop hints about what could be going on. I'm sure it's not as deep as that, but I do like the fact we could read it that way. Yeah. So Six goes down to the beach to find out what the commotion is. And as the professor is being chased across the estuary by his own students... Six finds a tape recorder buried in the sand, uh, which the professor seems to have dropped. And when he plays it, he can hear a taped message from the professor on there, like he's taped one of his lectures on there. Um, but before he can listen to it anymore, a couple of goons show up in a mini-moke. <laughs> so he uh, very cleverly buries it back in the sand in a different place so that it, they won't find it on him if he searches him, but he can come back for it later. So these two goons are making reference to uh, Six plain truant. Mm. And uh, Six's response that they are like prefects. Again, it, it just starts this, this whole idea that this episode is like all these people being in one big school mm. um, with a very specific way of educating its pupils. Yeah, yeah. the goons say to number Six that he doesn't want to start the term with a black mark, <laughs> so he needs to effectively get to class before the bell goes. Um, and meanwhile, actually, the mob have caught up with the professor in there. I mean, it's strange. They're kind of escorting him back. Hmm. Uh, so it's clear that there's something going on here, and there's there's just more to more to so many aspects of this plot than, than I think they let on at this point, which is kind of clever. Yeah. And when Six sees that the professor has been caught and is being taken back, he asks the, the general goons if the professor's going to make it to his lecture, which is supposed to be starting quite soon. And the goons say that he will make it because uh, he treats his lectures like his life depends on it, <laughs> uh, which in the village could be taken in a very literal sense. Yeah, there's a lot of subtext in this episode. <laughs> so the goons return Six to his uh, cottage. And he gets out and immediately on television... Which that, is already on. Which is already on, <laughs> which is very sinister, is the first of these kind of infomercial-style hmm. presentations all about speed learn. So we have uh, this guy, this American man, who I presume is doing the same voice as the as the hmm. Tannoy uh, earlier on, who... Yeah, I think, that, I think that's the only way to describe it. It is like an infomercial, isn't it? Yeah. He's selling this as this revolutionary new educational technique what else? It's got like 73% enrolment or something, or 72.4% enrolment <laughs> uh, with this, was it three years and three minutes course? Yeah. Um, 
and interesting uh, the the course that they talk about in this whole episode is all history hmm. yeah it's very specifically a history course but it's very selective history that hmm. they end up teaching but the the guy on the infomercial is saying that they want to improve on on the seventy three point four percent figure. They clearly want absolutely everybody involved. And then he hands over to a woman who, and as we later find out, is a professor herself of modern art. And she is introducing uh, the lecture, and she mentions that the whole process has been putting a an incredible strain on the professor, <laughs> um, and that you know she thanks everyone for kind of bearing with them. And the professor's almost done completing his notes for the next lecture. But in the meantime, they're going to have a little miniature sort of 15 second lecture of a what some kind of like postgraduate course, Europe since Napoleon, something like that. <laughs> and as is quite notable with some characters in The Prisoner, the professor and his wife are not given numbers. Mm. They're, uh, they're only referred to by their titles, uh, which, uh, you know, We've seen that be an interesting aspect of certain characters, like Cobb, for example, back in Arrival. We'll see it um, again for Dutton in a subsequent episode as well. Yeah. And also, neither of them wear village clothing. Yeah. They're both wearing their own clothing, both professors, um, which sets them apart from everybody else. And yet, you know, whatever special treatment they seem to be receiving isn't necessarily... A positive thing, <laughs> as we shall see. Um, but then we finally get the professor on TV when he's uh, well enough to lecture. He talks about speed learning, where he says that it's such a, a massive breakthrough in education that it's going to make teachers like him obsolete, basically. That you won't need teachers anymore once you've got uh, a technological way of teaching things to people you won't have to waste time at school anymore um you can just indelibly imprint a course like this on the mind and that's it which is a strange thing for such an insular place to be carrying out this speed learn test so in many ways the village is completely isolated Hmm. but here they're talking about uh speed learn and what the general is doing as something which will change the way education is handled everywhere Hmm. so there is a strange aspect to this which is you know how how isolated is is the village um how much you know does it like to be cut off from the rest of the world and in what aspect are the things that are going on actually related in some way or controlled by people outside of the village who are using this as a place to try out and experiment all these strange mind control or brainwashing techniques on people here as a means to maybe expose them to the wider world afterwards. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting having this form of teaching and communication effectively coming through somebody's television into their living room. It it plays on this idea of I suppose television as a relatively new medium for most people mm. who might not have had a TV for very long mm. at the time that the prisoner was made. And it got me thinking about the way in which education is put out there has changed so much. Because I guess for a long time you've had things like open university lectures on TV that you could watch in the middle of the night. But I don't think they have that so much now because it's all online. What you can have now is that you do have online courses. You have entirely online courses. You have distance learning courses and you have courses being taught 
on one side of the world and the students are on the other side of the world. And you can have all this now, but it's the, the reason it works now is because it's interactive. Mm. And yet here we have something that is entirely one way. There can be no interaction in the other way. There can be no questions from the students. There can only be information being imparted by the teacher. Mm. And it's information which is imparted without any context or reasoning invoked uh, by the students at all. Yeah. So when he announces that the lecture is going to be Europe since Napoleon, that's such an absolutely immense subject, uh, which the guy announces there would normally be six months study. But to be honest, I don't think that you could learn Europe since Napoleon in six months. But he claims that they're going to cover it in 15 seconds flat. Uh, but as we shall see, the idea of what history what parts of history are worth learning and what aren't is uh is very one-dimensional yeah and so six is tuned in to the tv program but he goes from being you know a viewer of this broadcast to being somebody who is clearly being uh drawn into the subliminal messages of the whole thing so it it shows a picture all of a sudden of the professor in black and white, which is the same picture you mentioned is featured on the poster. Yeah. And you have a strange, weird, dreamy music that's playing in the background as it kind of zooms in a little bit on him and it goes towards his eye. And as it zooms in, you you know, the music is racking up and it keeps cutting back between a zoom on the professor in the image and the zoom on number six as well. And this is like clearly how this information is somehow being transmitted through I don't know, through the, what, through the TV signal or something that's that's transmitting this strange message via this green light, which is flashing in the image of the professor's eye. Yeah, so it, it suddenly starts zooming in really fast onto the onto the eye and a green light is sort of flashing and pulsating and then it zooms back out again. And however the information is being put across, it's something to do with that light. And I, I like the idea that this is in some way playing into the sort of late 60s kind of moral panic about subliminal messages <laughs> in, in records, if you play records backwards, it will tell you to become a saint worshipper or whatever, what everyone was freaked out about at the time. And people being influenced by this technology that was coming directly into their homes. What effect was it going to have on people to have this in their own home? Uh, you know, what were people being taught through this new technology? I mean, one thing that that, that's just twigged is, I mean, I know he's, well, there's this entity referred to as the general, which is behind everything. And obviously there's the military connotation uh, to that title. And we've had that pop up several times in the prison. We've had reference to generals, colonels, admirals, all kinds of different things. But in this episode as well, given that it's about, you know, subliminal messages, brainwashing people, making everyone have the same information in them, um, mm. making them learn the same facts. In a much simpler way, the general could literally just refer to the word general. It just makes everyone the same. It's the least contextualised teaching ever. <laughs> and it just creates an education system of drone-like pupils who have information, but they it has no context. It has no relation to anything else. I mean, everything, ironically, that the general teaches just makes everything kind of smoosh into one and everyone becomes very homogeneous. Yeah, it's literally general knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so your exam just becomes the general knowledge quiz. <laughs> so 
when number six comes around from this after he's dropped his drink because um, he was so distracted by it, number two and a couple of goons turn up looking for the professor's tape recorder, which they suspect he has stolen, presumably because he's always up to no good and he's probably the first suspect they always think of when things go missing. Yeah, and number two is clearly quite perturbed about the missing tape recorder mm. because he he makes an offer which I can't figure out it, it, you know if at this point in the story it's a genuine offer or not which is well essentially he's offering six a way out to the village if he yeah. returns this almost as if the information that's on that tape recorder is so fundamental that if it got into the wrong hands or potentially was broadcast in some other way it would actually bring down the very fabric of the village and what the village was about. Yeah, it, it, this seems so important to them. that, However important it is that they get information from number six about why he resigned and win him over, this must be even more vital to their operations than that. Mm. That they would be willing to even offer it, even if they were lying, that they would even dangle this carrot in front of him to try and get him to give up the tape recorder. Maybe he knows that it would be a lie and that there's no way they would let him go. But it seems a bit desperate on their part to get this back. And often we talk about, is the village merely designed around capturing and getting information from number six? Whereas here, this is an episode which for the first time, it seems to be about other things going on in the village. Hmm. There are things which don't revolve around breaking number six. They seem to be events which Six is almost a passive observer of, mm. which is which is an unusual way of presenting a story in The Prisoner so far. Again, it's just a unique way that they've managed to um, to have another spin on these episodes. No, you know, none of them are the same, and this is just a different way of presenting a story in the village. It's not all about breaking number six. Yeah. So while they're searching his cottage... And he rather cheekily suggests that they ought to look in the wardrobe because <laughs> he knows that it's not there anywhere. Number two claims that the professor is worried about where this tape recorder has gone, which is clearly a lie. Um, it's clearly them who are worried about where it's gone. And then number two asks Six whether he enjoyed the lecture and tells him that he could learn a lot from it. And when Six says that history is not really his subject, two asks him when the Treaty of Adrianople was. And he immediately responds back, it was in, what, 1829, was I, it? I, I can't remember. I have not been a victim of Spiegelang. <laughs> Although I've watched this episode so many times. <laughs> um, and he, he rattles through several questions and Six just automatically replies with an answer and a, and a very assured answer that he doesn't really seem to be thinking about as he's saying it. It's so automatic that towards the end of one of his long responses, number two himself, joins in hmm. giving the exact response word for word letter for letter that number six is giving to uh, to his questioning thus proving that the information that is being imparted is not just facts but also a way of expressing those facts and the way that six responds after he's blurted out all these answers almost reflexively now uh, he knows that something is wrong hmm. and it's clear that he's aware of, well every time he goes to sleep something happens to him so he must be tired of that. But now he knows that even when he's awake, uh, he can just be watching the television and uh, something bad could be happening as well. I yeah. mean, he can be drawn into these bizarre mind-washing games that uh, uh, the village is playing with him and with everyone in the village. Yeah. 
And he rushes over to the telephone and asks the operator the same question, when was the Treaty of Adrianople? And the telephone operator, who is clearly also enrolled in Speedlearn, responds with the exact same series of, of answers. So not, not only have they all had the same facts implanted in their minds, but the way of expressing the answer is the same. And indeed, the questions are the same, because mm. he asks the questions in exactly the same way too. And at that point, number six realises that something is very, very wrong with Speedlearn. And even the nature of the material is so limited as well. The Speedlearn course is just imparting facts. But all these facts are very heavily geopolitical, mm. war-related statistics, essentially. Yeah. It's like, when was this war? What was the outcome of that? And it's about the shifts that seem to have taken place in the sort of world order, almost. Mm. It's almost like the only things that matter in history are the changes that happen at the international level. Yeah. Which is, in a strange way, you could almost imagine that's how the village sees things. It's such a, you know, it's such an isolated place. But all these conversations that the number two is often have with number six is always about how the village is a, is a, is a template for the rest of the world. Certainly, it just feels like it sees the external world as a series of, you know, you know, all these countries are, I know it's an analogy that will come up in the series anyway a lot, but, you know, everything is just um, a chess piece that can be moved around in mm. a series of events. And there are all these consequences, you know, but they're, but they're always linear events and they're always told from one particular side of whoever has uh, been involved in these uh, different skirmishes. Yeah, and changes like social changes or technological changes, which can be just as, if not more important in the long term in terms of how future generations ended up living their lives, are not even part of the course, mm. by the sounds of it. It's all, when was this treaty? Who declared war on this day? When did this battle happen? As if that was the only thing that history was about. Yeah, I think it's it's almost there to make people feel that by knowing these big picture events, that somehow covers everything. Mm. Just just the scale of the facts which are being condensed into these sound bites. Whereas, like you say, in reality, it ignores the subtleties, the intricacies and the non-geopolitical events that, that shape arguably a much larger proportion of human history. Mm. Oh, uh, what was the Treaty of Adrianople? September 1829. Wrong. I said what, not when. So curfew is about to hit, but number six decides to go out for a late night stroll anyway down to the beach to recover the tape recorder that he buried in the sand. But he's not alone. Yeah, uh, we see that uh, observing the whole situation is number 12. Now, again, it's this is a, an, a, well, a very unusual interaction. This is not somebody who is catching him and about to haul him into the village hierarchy. This is somebody who is almost complicit in these plans, was awaiting Six's return to retrieve it in the hope that he could start discussing what their what their plan is for how they're going to take down the general. And again, I don't think this is a plot to trick number six at this point. You know, this is very much somebody who is tr who maybe doesn't maybe doesn't agree with the general. I mean, he might believe in other things the village is doing, 
but he he clearly feels that whatever speed learn is it is not right so clearly some people in the village hierarchy do have some semblance of a moral compass yeah um, but they're few and far between yeah and, and number 12 knows that number two has offered this escape deal to number six um but number six doesn't trust him and he doesn't just trust number 12 either he doesn't trust anybody um except for himself obviously <laughs> number 12 leaves the tape recorder with number six and as he goes he asks number six what was the treaty of adrianople and number six replies september 19 18 20 whatever <laughs> Uh, and he says, I asked you what it was, not when it was, because this speed learning is making people give such an automatic response to what they think a question is. They're not actually listening to the question that they've been asked. Hmm. It's strange, almost like it's creating the dialogue hmm. that people should be having or that it believes people should be having, which is... I don't know, in this day and age, I think this is one of those moments when you have to step back from the whole thing and think the prisoner was way ahead of its time in mm. dealing with these issues. I mean, essentially, it's it's talking almost about ideas being put in people's heads to maintain their passive status, you know, to stop them questioning anything else, mm. anything that might actually be important or affecting them. You You fill their mind with big questions and you give them very succinct answers yeah and you can do it all in the guise of convenience you know speed learning is such a convenient thing you don't have to work hard at learning anymore you don't have to spend ages in school it's really boring you can do this it's so quick you know why wouldn't you want to do that mm. but it, it reminds me the other day i was i was writing an email and someone had emailed me and i need to go back to them and uh, when I hit reply, as well as a box where I could type my reply in, there were all these little suggested replies and buttons along the bottom, <laughs> like, um, you know, yes, see you then, or thank you, or whatever they were, where you could hit the button and it would automatically reply with that phrase. And I thought, that's not convenient. That's weird and creepy. That's suggesting to me what it is I might want to say. And in some ways, shaping the language that people use hmm. into the future. Which I suppose is the is the underlying, really sinister aspect of the whole thing. Because at this point in the episode, you know exactly what a technique like speed learn is being established for. Hmm. You know, there isn't there is no altruistic desire on on the part of the village to teach people a three year history course <laughs> in 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 three minutes or whatever. It's very much an idea of it's kind of controlling the dialogue. It's controlling, you know, the flow of information. It's controlling what people know uh, by indeed making them feel that the information they have is the information they need. Yeah. And at the same time, it you know, it provides answers that everyone will have. So therefore, there will never be any conflict because no one's going to have a different opinion. Yeah. Whatever the question you would only ever doubt yourself if you felt something different about it because whoever you ask would have the same answers that have been spouted a million times by everyone else in the village. So it is very strange how they're tackling this whole issue. But it is creating a almost like a drone population who are completely suppressed. Yeah, because the only information you can get 
from Speedlearn is whatever the people who run Speedlearn have decided to put in it. So it's, it's not like The Matrix. You can't be like Neo and you're going to jump up and say, I know Kung Fu. I've just downloaded Kung Fu into my mind. You know, you, you can only access what people have put into it. But who gets to decide what goes into it? Yeah. And what seems benevolent in terms of a history course could easily be changed into something else. Yeah. And as number 12 cryptically leaves, um, six turns on the tape recorder and listens to the message that was recorded. And it's a message indeed from the professor. But actually, there's a sense of urgency here to his voice. And he's basically saying that the whole speed learn thing and uh, what the general is doing is is wrong. Hmm. Um, it's a it's a complete hoax and the general must be destroyed. Yeah, he says, if you wish to be free, the general must be destroyed. Yeah. And if this is a lecture going out to his students, because he does say, you know, learn this, the general must be destroyed. This is clearly something that he was intending to broadcast and implant in the minds of his students, mm. who would then hopefully go and destroy the general, mm. which he might think is a very beneficial thing if the professor believes that the general is evil or that is ultimately going to lead to oppressing people. But you can imagine how the exact same tactic could be used by the village or indeed anyone else who got hold of that technology to inform people that so-and-so is evil, you must go and destroy them right now. And they would all rush off and do it while cheering and running on the beach. <laughs> what happened in 1878? 1878, Eastern Romania was declared an autonomous province of the Turkish Empire. <laughs> Word perfect, eh? <laughs> Best of luck with the exams. <laughs> so then we're back at the cafe the following day and two older gentlemen, one of are doing this kind of back and forth thing where they're testing each other with questions based on what I presume they've just learned in the recent speed learn course. Yeah, so one asks the other what happened in 1878 and he replies with something about Romania and Turkey that happened that year and the first gentleman describes it as word perfect. So it's clearly not just important that they know this fact but also that they express it in a word perfect fashion. And he says, you know, good luck with your exams. But as I said before, they don't really need luck because they already know this information and they're treating it as a, a kind of cramming session where they're testing each other on the answers, but they both clearly know all the answers because it's all been implanted in there. And they're both delighted at the fact that, you know, they're getting all of this right and they're going to pass their exams and it's great. But I want to go back to his original question, which is what happened in 1878? Loads of stuff happened in 1878. <laughs> Tons of things happened in 1878. But there's only one answer that is expected for the exams. And in some ways, it makes me think about schooling now where, you know, you, you have a syllabus, you go into an exam and you've got to repeat what's on the syllabus. So if the question was what happened in whatever year it is, they want you to answer with the thing that is on the syllabus and not with anything else, even if it may be true. Because what they're testing really is whether or not you've learned the syllabus, not whether you know stuff about the world. But it got me thinking, you know, what did happen in 1878? So I found out some things that happened in 1878. Uh, all of which... Are you about to speed learn everyone who's listening? <laughs> well, loads of, loads of it was, was far more interesting than, uh, than whatever they were talking about in there. Anyway, well, I find it more interesting anyway, but that's all subjective, isn't it? To what people are interested in. But I thought you might be interested in just a quick run through of some of the Fun facts I discovered about 1878. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
You ready for my, my top picks from the year 1878? Here we go. At 10, Newton Heath Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Football Club was founded by the carriage and wagon department of the Newton Heath Depot. These days they're known by a different name, Manchester United. At 9, the Tokyo Stock Exchange opened for the first time. It's now the third largest stock exchange in the world. And at 8, Thomas Edison received his patent for his invention, the phonograph. At 7, the Factory and Workshop Act made it illegal to employ children under the age of 10 or for women to work more than 56 hours a week. At 6, Tolstoy's novel Anna Karenina was published in its complete form for the very first time. At 5, an entire herd of iguanodon skeletons were discovered in a coal mine in Belgium, 321 metres below the ground. At 4, Edward Muybridge published his series of quick exposure photographs of the horse in motion, which definitively proved that horses have all four hooves off the ground when running. This study paved the way for the art of cinema. 3. A massive solar eclipse occurred in the skies above Colorado. Vast numbers of astronomers went out to look from a high altitude. Several claimed to have observed the theoretical planet Vulcan orbiting between Mercury and the Sun. Unfortunately, Vulcan wasn't really there. At 2. Louis Pasteur published his paper, Microbes Organised, Their Role in Fermentation, Putrefaction and Contagion, a seminal work in our understanding of immunology. And at number one, James Abbott Whistler, the famous artist, sued art critic John Ruskin over a bad review he gave to his painting, Nocturne in Black and Gold, The Falling Rocket, an abstract painting of fireworks over the River Thames at night. Ruskin had seen the work at an art exhibition in London, and in his review he wrote, I have seen and heard much of Cockney impudence before now, but never expected to hear a coxcomb ask 200 guineas for flinging a pot of paint in the public's face. Whistler sued for libel, and the trial descended into farce when the painting itself was brought into the courtroom upside down because the clerks didn't understand which way it was meant to be held up. Whistler won damages but it was only a farthing and the court fees ultimately bankrupted him, thus proving that when you're an artist you really shouldn't respond to your critics. Right, so <laughs> so somehow we have to uh, get get more on track again. <laughs> I'm going to pretend that didn't happen. And uh, so now we're back uh, in the town hall, number two, Colin Gordon is on his favourite red phone again, but not the giant red phone. <laughs> um, and uh, the butler is turning up with a jug of milk for him, mm. which is I think the one and only time he has uh, he has milk in this episode. Again, placing this a little bit f- before the immense stress that's going to um, befall him in uh, in A, B, and C. What's nice about this is this is the same set that was used, obviously, for the town hall council scenes in Free For All. Because in the background, we can see that crazy chair, that kind of weird shardy pyramid thing with the all-seeing eye above it mm. and the uh, the white on black penny farthing above it, which were, you know, so again, this is... I'm not sure this really helps us put it into um, the episode order at all, but there is at least some continuity between what's going on in these locations between uh, this episode and what happened in uh, Free For All. And number two is on the phone to someone uh, saying that they're getting 100% cooperation in Speedlearn and that the professor is getting some rest, but he's going to be fine. He'll be able to do everything that they require of him. So number two's neck is clearly on the line here if things do not go well to whoever he's reporting to. Yeah, and he refers to this as uh, the most important human experiment that the village has ever conducted, Mm. which again, taking out the number six aspect of the prisoner, 
it does seem to be the case that the village is performing strange experiments on its own citizens, which seem to be a template or a a cohort of people who are being used as guinea pigs for these trials, which potentially might be being unleashed on the rest of the world at some point. And then he follows it up by referring to it also being uh, run like a military exercise. Yeah, and he's clearly not happy about this because he's kind of complaining and muttering to himself after the phone call. So it was the greatest experiment we've ever done and it's treated like a military exercise. So he's clearly not a military man, number two. He's clearly a a bureaucrat, a civil servant kind Mm. of guy. And he's not happy with the idea that this experiment that they're doing is being interfered with in a way that he considers to be militaresque. Yeah, and indeed, obviously, you know, the general alludes to a military title. Mm. And it almost seems like, in a strange way, the military, um, as we see later on, have a hand in, in running this, this whole exercise. But it could be a situation that the village can be contracted out to people, almost, to perform mm. these kinds of experiments. Almost like, for this episode, in the same way that, as we were saying at the very beginning... It's a very insular series of events because we, we haven't heard about Speedlearn before or after. We've never seen these posters up. There's been no indication this has been happening at any other time. It it does almost feel like for the duration of this episode, the village is under somebody else's control, almost. You know, it's being used as a testing ground for this new Speedlearn experiment. It's subverting the, I think, what number two thinks is potentially the most critical thing that the village should be doing, which is cracking number six. Um, instead, it's it's being used to perform this big experiment. And, and and in light of the fact that he probably feels like he is being very generous by allowing this thing to take place, like you say, he doesn't like the way it's being run. Yeah. And because the village is often talked about in terms of whose side is it on, where number six can never get a straight answer. When he does meet retired military personnel, he can never get from them which army they were in. When he asks Leo McKern's number two about it in the Times of Blue Ben, and he responds about, you know, the, the two sides will see that they are looking into a mirror and, you know, the, the, the whole world is the village and all that kind of stuff. And in, in some ways, the village almost seems stateless in that respect, uh, international in a way that it doesn't have any loyalty I guess to a particular side but when you start bringing the military into it in terms of controlling what's happening in the village then it implies there must be a side because you can't have a military without a side can you unless you had some kind of crazy private military thing going on no it's well I suppose it wouldn't it if there was a place that had a military but had no reason to defend itself it would be the village, <laughs> but yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's an unusual. There's something weird about the way things are running in this episode. It just seems like uh, like normal service in the village has been interrupted, mm. and uh, it just seems very out of place with how how things are done in this episode. Um, not just because it's it's not primarily about cracking number six. Yeah, but interrupting number two's grumblings is number twelve. He comes wandering in. He talks about how he feels that they're going about everything the wrong way. Because he doesn't like the professor. He thinks he's a crank. He's a troublemaker. And it's it's hard to know. Is he is he saying a load of stuff he doesn't really mean because he wants to try and get the experiment ended? And he's playing two sides here. He doesn't know if number six is going to succeed. 
or if he's going to be able to get him on side. So he's trying another avenue to try and get number two to reconsider using the professor in this way. Or does he really think the professor is a crank and he's just trying to get it stopped? Number two shuts him down. You know, he, he asks him how long he's been with us. Mm. And he replies, it's been quite a long time. Which again raises the question of how close is this to the schizoid man if he's been number 12 for a long time. Yeah. But number two cautions him that he should keep his opinions to himself about the professor. So clearly this is, a, you know, this is above your pay grade. Um, stop talking about the professor in those terms. Just get on with your job in administration, which is what you're supposed to be doing. And indeed, with all the, I mean, it, you know, it cuts to a scene where the supervisor is in the room with the sort of rotating seesaw chair thing, where everyone's watching the thing that's going on. I've always wondered at what point number two knows that number twelve is up to something, hmm. because everywhere is under surveillance. And there's always a funny thing in the prisoner when they want to uh, have a story plot point based on the fact that number six is being watched. It's always the fact that there's a camera on him. Hmm. And when he needs to do something where he's not being watched, he often finds a quite convenient way to do it. So it is a bit odd, but you, but it it does make me wonder with your idea that number two is potentially not happy with what's going on. Is he is he in some way also waiting for the the whole experiment just to collapse in on itself in some in some bizarre way? Yeah, because it, he immediately goes off and gets the supervisor to bring up the surveillance on the professor to check on what the professor's doing. And the professor is at his typewriter typing away and you see a couple of doctors come in and and basically it's it's men in white coats taking him away <laughs> and telling him he has to rest. And they're clearly controlling his every movement, telling him when he's got to work, when he's got to rest. But number two is obviously keeping an eye on him. He is worried about the professor's state of mind not necessarily altruistically, but but more in terms of we have to make sure that this doesn't go wrong or that it doesn't go wrong on his watch. I mean, going back to the idea that maybe the village has been contracted out to somebody else or some other uh, priority has come up to run the Speedland thing. Some further evidence for that comes from the fact that obviously the professor and his wife don't have numbers. Mm -hmm. They've also had an existence outside of the village. Because, yeah. you know, they talk about their career before this, um, but they won't say any more about that. And actually, the people who are attending to the professor, although they do have numbers, they're not being referred to as numbers. Yeah. They're just being referred to as, you know, doctor and nurse and things, which almost seems like there's a whole new set of people who are doing something in the village at the moment. Yeah, because in order for the village to function, it must be funded in some way. And if it isn't affiliated with a particular government or a particular state, then where does it get its funding from? And I guess one way that it could get its funding from is by, as you say, this space for rent, come and do your experiment here, <laughs> pay us a load of money, we'll run the experiment for you on our captive population. Mm. You can provide some additional security if you want, and no one will ever need to know that you did it here. Quite like that idea. Yeah. So the professor gets taken away for some rest and mild therapy. <laughs> which you get the feeling isn't going to be a nice spa day somewhere. Mm. After he gets taken away, someone takes the pages from the typewriter 
that he was working on and feeds them into an incredibly 60s looking bulky machine with weird dials and counters and stuff on. I love machines like that. I I just, I, I would have loved being a set designer back then and making all these weird machines. So like, I don't think they were weird back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but these, these kind of, because you don't really know what it is that they're doing. Yeah. You could just invent them. Yeah, just put some like twirly knobs on things and yeah, all these, yeah. Yeah. There's like a little counter in the bottom right-hand corner um, that's like one of those um, milometer hmm. things, but it doesn't have very many numbers on it. So I don't know if it, is it counting the pages that are going in. What is it there for? Somebody just put it on because it looked cool. I don't know. I love I love stuff like that. I think that's it. I think I think they just design these things because they looked like like a you know a crazy piece of machinery. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's exactly what somebody who wants to make a mad scientist computer would do they would just get a box just random buttons dials knobs county things all kinds of things yeah it's the computer equivalent of you know those elaborate chemistry experiments where there's all the beakers of different colors and things bubbling (laughs) and all the tubes going everywhere and they always look really funky but they're clearly not actually doing anything (laughs) It's it's the computer equivalent of that i love it so yeah they they feed this document in and out comes what looks like a a kind of punch card yeah. type sheet of plastic, which is a hint of what is to come, mm. I guess. I think that's the that's meant to be sort of a, a document that gets fed into the system that is then relayed during one of these speed learn courses. So the way it seems to work is that the professor types up his lecture notes. The lecture notes are converted into these punch cards. The punch cards are fed into something and they form the basis of this speed learn so that punch card must be read into a machine that spits it out as something that is transmitted in the tv signal so then we go back to madame Mangadine's party i mean uh the professor's <laughs> courtyard <laughs> Yeah, so again, placing this episode right up against A, B and C, the professor's wife is at home on a set that is, well, it's the same one that was used for the exteriors of Madame Ongadine's party. Yeah. And she's painting and also talking to some students who are sitting around doing various things or in some cases doing nothing. And number six is sitting in a folding chair on the other side of the courtyard. And he says that he's... uh, looking for something, but he can't find anything. And they have a bit of a, a sharp exchange with each other. What follows seems to be a bit of a joke about the polar opposite of that kind of rote learning schooling <laughs> method, which is a bit of a kind of 1960s free hippie learning method, where there's a, there's a guy in a, a corner tearing up a book, and Madame Professor says that he is creating a fresh concept. Uh, there's a girl standing on her head and she says that she's developing a new perspective. There's someone who's just asleep in a chair. <laughs> and she says that the mind doesn't learn at set times mm. and you have to be rested in order to want to learn. So it, it seems to be everything that speed learn is not, which is learning in whatever fashion you want and learning whatever topic you want or even not learning if you want as opposed to the 100% entry you will learn this response to this question you will repeat it you will pass form of schooling now after explaining all this stuff madame professor the professor's wife explains that her field is modern art 
and Six then shows her what he's been doing, and uh, it's actually been sort of a like a pastel sketch of her while she's been standing there talking to him the whole time. Yeah, he's he's quite a nifty sketch artist, as well as being a sculptor, as we already know from from the charms of Big Ben. Yeah, he does like to dabble in the arts. Yeah, That's interesting. I do wonder. If this is. I mean, do you think this is one of those? Well, I'm sure it's easy to find out, although we haven't bothered. <laughs> I do, you know, do you think that in real life, McGowan was somebody who was good at woodwork and he was good at sketching and things like that and he just put that in for the character? Yeah, a bit of a polymath. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. And he probably just drew that on the set during the scene. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so he hands her this sketch of her in a general's outfit. <laughs> clearly testing to see if she is the power behind the throne of the professor but she isn't having any of it she's not happy about it at all and i think it's interesting that at this point he he knows that something is up with the general but the fact that he takes it literally to be a general Mm. it's interesting because i i suppose i view it almost as him playing Six's game that he sometimes does in The Prisoner, which is when he doesn't know what something is, he he goes about deducing what it is by working out what it isn't. Mm. So he just tries these, uh, these games out and he doesn't mind the, uh, being seen to be wrong because I think then it makes the village think that he's confused and he, he doesn't know what's going on. But secretly, he is always trying to chip away at what all the other things are. It's almost like he's always he's always in a perpetual game of of 20 questions with, you know with you know with the village and uh he's narrowing it down always finding things out i love that aspect of it because it does it just feels like he never he never stumbles onto the answer immediately and the mm. episode is about that it's always about him being as obscured from what's going on as the viewer and as you find things out he finds things out the only thing is i think he seems to have come from a profession where he can remain cool under pressure in these situations and he's mm. not he's not too irked by these weird situations. Yeah, so he doesn't know that Madame Professor is the general. She might be. She's one of many possibilities, <laughs> I guess, in his mind. But after giving her the sketch, engaging her reaction, he now knows that she is not the general mm. and he can move on to whatever other options there are out there. But at least she's been crossed off the shortlist. Mm. Um, but he's going to have to cross literally every other human being off the shortlist <laughs> before he gets to the answer. <laughs> so he decides to have a snoop around inside the house, uh, finds his way in, and starts looking around inside the professor's, plurals, private residence, which is very nice. They've got a big house to live in. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's clearly a different deal that they have. Uh, compared to all the other village residents. And again, that makes me feel like this is some experiment where they have been brought in from an external source in order to conduct this experiment, whether it's for their benefit or the villagers' benefit. Somehow, I think the village has just contracted out the use of the village and its, uh, and its residents for whoever wants to run a crazy mind control experiment. Yeah, because at one point, Madame Professor talks about how the two of them have come there willingly hmm. and have certain privileges. But whether or not they really did come there willingly or came there under false pretenses, maybe, they're certainly not still remaining there willingly in any respect at all. Um, They clearly can't go. And as number six snoops around inside the house, you see all these 
weird um, columns with uh, cloths draped over them, scattered around with what looked like bottoms of uh, busts underneath them. Yeah, and Madame Professor, she sees him snooping around and asks if he's a spy. <laughs> which I suppose in the context of the prisoner mythology is a very telling question here. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously there is, a que- you know, there is a query about what number six's former profession was. In some way, it's highly likely that he was involved in the intelligence world in some way. And the fact that she says, are you a spy? And she's come from the outside world as well. It's an interesting question to have asked her, I think, because you just, you know, it does make you wonder if she knows more than the viewer knows um, in terms of what's going on. Yeah. And I, I think it is telling when she says, we came here willingly, but that's very much in the past tense, because yeah. that could be a true statement which doesn't necessarily mean that they still want to be there. And as part of the exchange, they have another reference to prisoners and wardens as mm. well, which, again, it I think we first heard that properly in Free For All, didn't we? Yeah. Probably when... Um, He's given speech and he says, which of you speech. are the prisoners and yeah. which are the warders? So it's, you know, in these early episodes, there are lots of elements that do connect up thematically the same terms are being used again and again and i think later on in the episode we have reference to cabbages as well Mm. not the rotten cabbages of a free-for-all but um there's some other reference that takes place later on so yeah it's it's interesting that they have these recurring turns of phrase as well yeah and as the cloths are being pulled off all the different busts i mean it's unclear who many of them are but the first obviously recognizable one is the bust of uh, Leo McKern's number two, which I think is the <laughs> same bust that was seen actually in the art exhibition. It's clearly been repurposed here. Mm. Um, although it is clear that it would have been after the art exhibition as well. So, you know, not just as a prop, it could have actually been one that was salvaged after that and is being used in her work area where she's doing these um, these sculptures. Although the implication that she has done it and doesn't really fit with the fact that she probably wasn't at Number Two's art exhibition in uh, Chimes of Big Ben. No, it's odd, isn't it? Because there's also a sculpture of Colin Gordon's Number Two yeah. in there, and a sculpture of Number Six. Yeah. So I don't know when she did that, or indeed why she did that. Yeah. That's quite an odd one. But it's, yeah, it's also striking that this episode features two busts of the two Number Twos who've appeared more than once. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is obviously the second appearance by Colin Gordon, although potentially the first chronologically. And Leo McKern will will return in The Prisoner <laughs> as well uh, later on in the series. Yeah. Number two arrives, and we get another school reference where he asks number six if he's playing truant. <laughs> and number six replies that he's just doing a bit of homework. <laughs> yeah. So all these references, not just that, you know, they, they don't just tie into the, the school terminology within the episode but i think they foreshadow some of the themes which are covered in a later episode which uh, whatever the audio equivalent of look away now is um <laughs> you know is once upon a time mm. yeah there's there's something probably tied with that to the fact that once upon a time was shot very early on in the run so Maybe maybe the school theme was built into these uh, these early episodes deliberately. And number two mentions that he and number six are old friends, which I know some people have taken to mean that this does take place after A, B and C, in that they knew each other before. 
But it, it could even mean potentially that they knew each other before the village. Yeah. And I one reason I like that reading of it is that I think when we were talking about Chimes of Big Ben yeah. and we were talking about the alternate version of that, there's that scene where Fotheringay picks up the phone. I'm not sure who he's speaking to, but he's just saying that he has got the coded message that uh, Six has sent. He says something like, yes, I'm looking forward to seeing him too. Now, in the in the alternate version, the scene is almost the same. But he says something like, yes, we went to school together. Mm. And that's cut from the actual episode. Now, I find it interesting that potentially there are characters who appear associated with the village who may have known him, uh, number six that is, in his former life. Mm. Uh, so although it's cut so maybe it can't be considered canon you could argue that uh, Fotheringay knew um, number six when they were at school and therefore Colin Gordon's number two irrespective of the order of the episodes in which he's appearing could have known number six from some time before and another layer of that I suppose is that when the A, B and C experiment is running uh, number two is very aware of who the other spies are so maybe he was maybe he moved in similar circles it's unclear exactly how that works but there's no reciprocated response from six that implies that he knew number two Mm. so that i suppose that does count against it and then there's a really weird sequence next where number six sees that the professor is in bed he can see through the doors and there's the doctor in there and the professor seems to be asleep in bed but number six goes in and smashes the wax figure of the professor and exclaims in very James Bond fashion, he's gone to pieces. <laughs> it's very uh, it's very original Westworld, Matt. Um, I still don't understand exactly what's going on here. In the world of The Prisoner, we know that there is the potential for doubles to exist. How they come about, it's unclear, but certainly it's implied that the village is able potentially to make these doubles themselves, or it populates the village occasionally with odd doubles. Now, in this case, if they have the ability to do that, I I don't really understand why they have a waxwork version of the professor. What you know, what purpose it serves, and I don't really understand what the professor's wife's response is meant to signify. Yeah, because at first she seems horrified, but then later number two refers to it as her masterpiece. And and who were they trying to fool by having this wax figure of the professor in there if the only people who were going to be in there would be people who would know that he was actually stuck down in some basement somewhere being forced to Mm. keep working on his lectures? I suppose... Again, going back to this crazy idea that B-Learn experiment is being conducted in a village which has been contracted out to an external organisation. I mean, maybe maybe because the professor and his wife are not proper members of the village or its hierarchy, uh, because they're new, there is no double or opportunity for that to happen. They are completely external people who have been brought in to conduct this experiment. Yeah. But number two informs them six that the offer he made him of uh, giving him his freedom in exchange for the tape recorder has been cancelled <laughs> because the professor no longer needs his notes. Mm. And number six replies, 
he doesn't need the notes either and casually takes it out of his pocket and throws it over to him. <laughs> He's like, oh, you don't want it anymore. Well, you can have it now then. <laughs> I like that. It's, if you could imagine this interaction taking place at this point in the relationship between six and two, it, it almost makes perfect sense that uh, number two is so wound up by number six <laughs> by the events of A, B and C. You know, at that point in their, you know, in their own personal history, he must be so annoyed with these kind of smart-ass comments that uh, <laughs> that number six keeps coming up with, and the way in which he's always seemingly playing with and one step ahead of what the villagers' plans are. You know, things that things that two couldn't get away with, mm-hmm. he sees six being able to do. Almost like six is the class clown at school who can get away with certain things. <laughs> after six leaves number two has a chat with madame professor she asks him what it is that number six wants and number two says what all of us know what some of us want ultimately which is to escape hmm. which is a telling remark because is number two also effectively trapped in his circumstances can he not escape from his role yeah which is different to as an example leo mckern's number two who absolutely loved being in the village <laughs> You know, it's you know there there is a question over whether the twos volunteer or whether they're drafted in. What has brought them to to this position of rotating de facto leader of the of the village? Uh, and maybe two just sees this role as a means to an end. He has to see through this speed learn experiment, but he also wants out. And it's clear at this point as well that following up what Madame Professor and the professor have alluded to in that they came from somewhere else and have been brought to the village all the goals of this experiment potentially have been subverted in some way for quite nefarious purposes and potentially ones that don't really have an end point it's clear that they want to get out as well Mm. and they don't have a clue how they're going to do it and then there's this wonderful shot where the camera zooms in on the bust of patrick mcgurin and then switches to people running around in these kind of grotesque Halloween masks, which is... I have no clue whether this is actually supposed to be Halloween. I don't know why they're suddenly dressed up like... I have no idea. <laughs> I have nothing. For but, once, I can't, I can't even... I can't even come up with, a, with a, a completely random theory or tangent. I have no idea why they've got these masks on, but it just adds to the absolute weirdness of the whole thing that all of a sudden it seems to be some Halloween festival taking place. Yeah, it's like, it's like a, a, a wild end-of-term party, but they clearly haven't finished going through the lecture series yeah. yet. And yet, here they are, partying, running around in masks. The American tannoy announcer is now wandering around with a roving microphone interviewing people about what they like about SpeedLearn and asking them questions mm. in order to get the responses they've learned from SpeedLearn, then reaffirming that they've got the answers absolutely correct. Yeah, it's unclear who he's even speaking to, because he's because there's no, well, well, he's interviewing them, but it's unclear whom he's addressing these little talking heads things to. Mm. The camera is is following him around, but it's not like it's being broadcast seemingly. But it does seem like they're all caught up in this fake TV show almost, this fake infomercial, which just adds to the absurdity of them being taught by this bizarre subliminal means and then being caught up in the excitement of it being like a tv show as well when they're being asked to reveal what facts they've learnt uh, as a result of this course 
Yeah, it's almost like he's there filming some kind of documentary or infomercial that's going to be shown to somebody else to say, look, this is what we achieved. Yeah. You know, all these people were so happy with Speedland. They were running around waving signs, reading no homework. And we asked them the scripted questions and they gave the scripted answers. And it's it's all worked. You, you kind of imagine it being packaged up as a very glossy advert for why speed learn is great and at the end of it one of those little disclaimers it says side effects may include becoming rough cabbages <laughs> <laughs> no you're right i think i think he's it does appear that he's he's documenting it for for some purpose um and yeah potentially it's the people who are actually running the speed learn experiment but nevertheless the students will seem incredibly happy <laughs> and roaming around because they don't have to do any studying even though the exam's coming up because they already know everything. But number six is not really a party animal. So uh, he heads home. The lights are all off, which is odd, because normally when he comes home, the lights and the TV and everything are already mm. on for him. But the lights are all off, which seems to make him automatically suspicious. Yeah. And when he tries to switch the main lights on in the house, it blows a fuse, and the phone immediately rings to say, the electrical people are going to be coming over to your house. So the, the response is that automatic. Your fuse is gone, we're going to send someone around to take care of it. Immediately what happens is the electrician shows up. Now, this is not the same electrician, or, his, or indeed his double from arrival. <laughs> uh, this is a new person uh, in a yellow boiler suit who rocks up and uh, is there to fix things. And yeah. then followed soon after, uh, number 12 appears. Yeah, but it, it clearly wasn't an emergency, because as we know, in an emergency, the electricians walk... <laughs> They wouldn't have brought the buggy. <laughs> yeah, number 12 is is there. He turns up uh, with a torch and he's there, I think, pretending to be somebody supervising the repairs and to find out exactly what's going on. Clearly meant to create the uh, appearance of him investigating something that Six may have done wrong in order to sabotage the equipment or something. Yeah. But secretly he's there to uh, have a brief bit of time during the power cut to ask number six if Six actually wants the lecture that the professor was preparing to actually go out as a speed learn course. So he's brought the course. I think it's kind of hidden. It's like inside a pen yeah. or something, like a tube. Yeah, and he's using it. So again, that'll, that'll play into things later, explaining how how information is loaded into uh, these speed learn transmissions. Um, and he also gives them a little token as well, a little circular token, which he says will get him access to the administration officers, yeah, I think, which is where Twelve reveals that he works. But again, he's doing all this kind of under the radar because when the power comes back on, he has to pretend to be castigating Number Six for you know some kind of insubordination over cutting the power or damaging equipment or something. But he uses that in a way to code a message that uh, Six needs to go to the admin officers, which is where he works, and that's really going to be where the meetings are taking place regarding the administration of what the general is up to. The plan they've hatched is that the lecture the professor recorded on the tape that was found on the beach, the one saying the general must be destroyed, that is what they both want to be broadcast. For whatever reasons they both have, they both want that to be broadcast to the students instead of their history lecture, which is meant to go out the next day. But as you say, when the lights come back on, he goes back to accusing him of sabotage and says that he uh, will recommend the full penalty for number six, which is imprisonment or a fine. <sighs> and number six says, well, I'll take the fine. <laughs> you wouldn't really expect anything else from him. 
And so much for the theory, gentlemen. Now for the practice. Now the next day, and the real professor is in bed, which is just even more confusing as to why the waxwork professor was in there before. But the doctors are testing him, and they confirm to Madame Professor that he is going to be well enough to do the lecture later on. I do wonder if maybe they have the waxwork there in case any of the students need to see evidence of uh, <laughs> of the professor's existence. Maybe they know that the power of what the general and speed learner are doing is, you know, is so profound. It clearly has had an effect at the beginning where it's got the students chasing after him. That maybe what's happening is they need to have a model of the professor there just pretending to sleep so that if the students do turn up at the house demanding the next the next seminar or lecture uh, they have something to show them obviously not not believing that somebody's going to hit him in the face with a cane <laughs> <laughs> and reveal he's actually a waxwork yeah so later on we've got some suited and top-hatted guys going into is it the town hall where some kind of the the, the guts of the administration of, mm. of the village anyway um, and they're there for the lecture approval session. So obviously it isn't just a question of what the professor wants to put in his lectures. There is a board of people who gather mm. together to approve what is going to go into the lectures. Uh, and what we see is one of the top hat and sunglasses uh, gentlemen doing is he takes this token, which has a little picture of a penny farthing on it, and he puts it into a little coin slot in what I think is actually uh, an Adams Family, the thing, a money box. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so a little hand reaches up from a, a crack and grabs the token and pulls it back inside and lets him through. But wasn't that Patrick McGoon who wanted that in there? Yeah, I was reading that. I think it's it's such a strange thing to include something so pop culture <laughs> you know, in The Prisoner. Because, you know, it is something which, if you know what it is it immediately tells you a little bit about the cultural context of when this show was going out. Mm. But it's a very playful reference for a show that likes to pretend that the village is so isolated from external influence. It's kind of funny that as a joke, he's deliberately put something in, which is recognisable from another TV show. <laughs> but also, the other thing is, it looks like exactly the kind of thing that you would see in the village. Yeah, you know. So unless I mean I didn't know that it was from the Adams family before doing a bit of reading about it, but it seems to be a perfectly normal thing that the entrance to these rooms would have something silly like that uh, at the entrance where you have a token, which is collected by a little a little thing arm that comes and gets it. Yeah. So we see a line of top hatted dudes waiting to get inside for the lecture approval session. And in amongst them is number six in sunglasses and a top hat. How did he know to get them? Where did he get them from? I think there's a. I think it's one of those things where there's probably a deleted scene where there's a guy who is tied up, probably in his <laughs> pants, somewhere around the back of a labour exchange, who uh, is about to get found by probably those prefects from earlier. <laughs> you know, he'd be like, "Oh, number six stole my clothes." One of those. The other thing that's interesting here is that as we see people going into uh, the projection room where I think a lot of these decisions are being made, where the, the little microfilm things are being inserted into, uh, into the uh, machines in there, we also see people guarding the door who do have numbers. So they are members of the village, but they have, and this is an unusual costume in the village, again, I think it's the first time we've seen this, uh, they're like 
sort of dark grey boiler suits. They still have the sunglasses, but they have white hats. And there's something very militaristic about them, mm. almost like they're military police, which adds to the idea that either they, you know, that this episode is revealing an underside to what the village, you know, does usually. We just haven't seen it before. Or these are the people who have been brought in to oversee the safe conductance of the of this uh, speed learn experiment, you know, and it's a military operation, which act, which makes it even more sinister that the mil- that the military are involved in a subliminal mass education system, which could easily obviously be subverted. I don't know to to turn one set of people against another, you know, for example. It's exactly the it's exactly the wrong group of people to maybe be in charge of. <laughs> testing uh, the system especially under the guise of it being some benign way to uh, save money on your tuition fees <laughs> yeah so number two is delivering the lecture in that tube form uh, to the guy operating the projector in the projection room and when the operator asks him if the lecture's been cleared number two says it will be hmm. so clearly number two is not actually in charge of saying whether or not these things can go out even he has to defer to this lecture approval group who are meeting to decide whether or not to continue Mm. with the experiment which maybe that's one of the things that annoys him maybe he'd just like to be able to say yes we're doing it and carry on but again it does make it seem like this is the first time we've seen number two involved in something that he he doesn't have direct control over so maybe this is an external thing which is taking place in the village Hmm. And meanwhile, outside, number six is skulking around, waiting for the opportunity to uh, make his move. And he's wearing a badge, which is number it's number 56? Yeah, number 56. Which still got number six on there. Still got number six. <laughs> uh, and he waits and observes what the other people are doing to get in before he's on his own and he decides to make his way in himself, just as the approval session is about to begin. And, and first he tests the gateway by throwing a folder at it and it gets shocked by some kind of electric force field and hurled back at him uh, at which point he gets up the token that number 12 gives him puts it in the thing money box little hand comes up grabs it and through he goes yeah it's it's odd this because it's clear that whatever the secret is behind what's going on the fact you have some bizarre electrical force field protecting it one makes it seem very important and two, it does make you wonder about exactly what scientific uh, status the village actually has. If it, if it has access to bizarre things like force field controls uh, on gates. And I think, again, I don't think it's a spoiler, but it's, it's not the last time we're going to see force fields blocking mm-hmm. entrances to places in the village in episodes of The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. So now that he's sort of found his way backstage in the administration building uh, he can start skulking around and see what he can find meanwhile the lecture approval board are meeting and number two introduces number 12 who starts talking about speed learning he's effectively giving a sort of board presentation um, explaining to the board why speed learning is great explaining that the basis of it is that the students have confidence in the professor and that they trust the professor and that the professor has confidence in the way speed learn works. And this is interesting because 
if you think back to those posters that we saw at the beginning with the professor's face on, it's the same picture that appears in the lecture itself. The posters say, trust me, so it can be done, trust me. All of them say, trust me. And it's like it's reinforcing that idea of, of mutual trust between the professor and the students, which is somehow required to make speed learning function. So you couldn't just put any old face of someone up on a screen and have the green light flash and make it work. It seems to only work if the students believe that this is going to work and trust the professor to be giving them good lectures, I guess. Yeah, so you have to... Well, I think half of the the ease with which the subliminal messages are actually working is the fact that you have to be receptive to them. Hmm. Uh, so you're right. Maybe it's the fact that they that the trust that they rely on is what makes people who are watching these speed learn broadcasts actually receptive. So it's clear they're testing all aspects of how this could be rolled out in the real world from the people who are delivering it to the methods of it and how you need to condition the audience to uh, take on these messages as well. Yeah, so in an ideal world, if you wanted to do this, you would probably want David Attenborough. (laughs) Someone like that, someone who everybody trusts and yeah. everybody loves to, uh, yeah, suddenly his eyes turn green and you have all the knowledge that they want you to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so while this presentation is going on, Six is uh, mooching around and there's a, a couple of military guys outside the projection room and they're walking up and down corridors a bit like, you you know in a computer game where there's always... Like in a, in a Zelda game or something, there's always a section where you have to get past the guards and the guards always walk up and down corridors. And, and you have very... to time it. Yeah, yeah, so they don't see you. and They, they go in certain patterns and they go back. It's like that. They, they're clearly just going back and forth like little little um, NPCs in a game. Yeah, no, number six takes one of them out, obviously puts his, his military issue white glove on, beckons the other one over and knocks him out too. So yet another costume change beckons. So number six then makes it to the projection room. Now he has uh, taken out the guards. And he looks inside and we see I think like a technician there who is putting these little tube-like messages or whatever into a large rotating device which allows them, I think, to be part of the transmission. It's part of these little lessons. What I like about these scenes is that Although there is a question over what Six did before he got to the village, he seems to be pretty adept at doing this kind of this mm. kind of work, I suppose, whatever this kind of work is. Yeah, he can knock someone out with one punch. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the midst of a, uh, of a skirmish that takes place, because he wants to sort of get control of the situation, um, he gets stabbed in his hand. And I think it's one of the few scenes where we actually see blood in the prisoner, mm. because it, um, there's blood kind of streaming streaming down his hand it's not it's not really censored at all you'd expect them to have done something to you know obscure it. i'm sure there would be some tv standards that would have said you can't put that much blood on screen but uh, he's bleeding but at the same time he's, there's this bit where there seems to be like a periscope like contraption in the room mm. uh, that he pulls down and he clearly knows how having observed what the technician was doing how to insert the uh, secret message from the professor which is on that little tube, from the pen into uh, some transmission device uh, within the projection room. And he also then changes into his clothes as well. Yeah. Sort of between between cuts, doesn't he? Yeah. He, uh, he, you know, he manages to change from what he was wearing before to the white 
lab coat or whatever that the technician was wearing. Yeah, so suspecting that someone somewhere is watching to make mm. sure that everything's functioning properly, he yeah. uh, has another costume change. And indeed, back in the boardroom, 12 is continuing to explain speed learning, and he states that the information is imposed on the cortex of the brain and that with boosters, it is virtually indelible, which is probably the most frightening thing about it, yeah. really, that once information's in there, you can never get rid of it. I mean, I've I've forgotten at least 80% of what I learned at secondary school because it's, it's irrelevant information. But to not be able to forget something, because there's only so much knowledge you can really store in your mind, and it's just taking up space that you then can't use for anything else. But they, sure enough, in the boardroom, they start flicking through on the big screen images of everyone in the studio ready to go. It's like Studio A, Studio B, projection. And then they notice that the uh, chap in the projection room has an alarming amount of blood on his arm and something is clearly very wrong. Yeah, and number two notices this first. Number 12 tries to pretend that he hasn't noticed it in order to kind of act as a distraction here. But two realises that something is wrong. And as he looks at the screen, he realises that the guy in the projection booth is not the technician from before, but is actually uh, number six. Yeah. And they send a couple of standard issue military goons round to club him over the head <laughs> and drag him away. <laughs> so the plan fails and the lecture that was intended to go out by number two does go out. There is no question. No question from advanced mathematics to molecular structure from philosophy to... So with the approval board looking on, we see the lecture going out, we see the weird spinning spiky orb, we see the green flashing lights going out of the professor, and it is declared to be successful speed learn, thanks to the professor and congratulations to the general. So an approved speed learn course transmitted again. Mm. And it's clear that each time they're doing this, this is, I mean, at this point, you know that this is, you know, that this is not a benevolent means of teaching people history. <laughs> uh, you know, this is a, you know, a brainwashing method where they are pushing its limits to see what you can transmit and how long you can have that information persist in the minds of those who are, are receiving it. So once the lecture is over, number six is being interrogated in the boardroom, but most of the board members are gone now. It's just the military police over there. Yeah, and two and twelve. And twelve is giving the appearance of interrogating number six, asking him, who are you working with? They've got the bright light shining down on his face in interrogation style. You know, who are your co-conspirators? And it's a wonderful scene where the two of them are playing this in the knowledge that neither of them are going to say anything by the fact that it was them who did it. And you try to judge whether or not number two has already figured it out. And does he know that they're basically putting on an act mm. for him or not? And number two is reading a transcript of the lecture that they tried to slip out, mm. the lecture about destroying the general. And he describes it as old-fashioned... Old-fashioned slogans like the freedom to learn and the liberty to make mistakes, which is an odd, it's an odd thing to call that old-fashioned, isn't it? But then I'm not thinking about it in terms of in the 1960s. Hmm. Um, I find it interesting that they use those turns of phrase whilst also having deeply troubling 
statements of intent in the labour exchange. Yeah. You know, which are far broader and more ideologically problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're trying to, you know, use to suppress the independence of mind of, of people who are brought to the village. Yeah. And then when the phone goes, number two answers and it's Madame Professor on the other end. And she's anxious to know whether or not the lecture went okay, whether they're pleased with it. And she wants to be able to see her husband. Yeah. But they tell her that she can't, you know, he's working so well, they don't want to disturb him. She can, you know, maybe you can see him after the next lecture's been done. This is clearly a, a game they've been playing for a long, long time. Just just one more lecture, just one more thing we need him for, and then you can see him. And then number two explains to number six that they're effectively using Madame Professor as a means of getting the professor to continue with his work, that she encourages him to keep going in the hope that they can, I suppose, somehow get out of this. And the professor keeps going because he loves her and that's why they need both of them in order for this to function, because they need the professor for speed learn to work and they need the damn professor, otherwise the professor would just give up, I suppose. But ultimately, they are prisoners of the village as well. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting that they haven't worked out that actually it's very unlikely that a deal with the village will ever truly result in you being given your freedom. Whereas number six realizes that obviously very early on, he's not, you know, he's never going to negotiate an exit. He knows that he has to uh, do it his own way. Then number two tells number six, but also obliquely is telling number 12 that rebels must be kept under close observation with a view to their extinction. Yeah, which is a direct follow up, I think, to the conversation that 12 had with two earlier on when he was questioning um, whether. 12 should keep his opinions to himself about what he thought about uh, the professor and what he was doing. Mm. And he says something odd about the fact that it's the professor's kindly image which is important to the speed learning process, which again goes back to what you're saying about the students needing to be receptive to the information in order for it to work. But he then calls the general's office to tell them that they're all going to come down there. And he says that the general can answer any question given the right facts or given the right information yeah something like that so it's i think that the way that this is working is that it's built on logic so you can give it a series of statements and it can deduce from those statements the answer to any question and ultimately this will be its downfall <laughs> yeah and at this point when you're watching it for the first time and you don't know what the general is it almost seems like number two is talking to the general himself yeah in that moment where he says, it's just a slight problem, we're going to come down. Uh, but of course, he's he's actually just talking to someone in the office where mm. the general is kept. And all this leading up to the big reveal. Mm. Yeah. But it's interesting that they have chosen to show number six, the general. There is always something very cocky about what the village does, in that once it feels that it has gotten away with what it was trying to do, whether that has been break number six, or in this case, something else, uh, some other experiment which is being run. It's interesting that they choose to reveal what's been going on almost as a means to show how powerful they are because there's nothing that six can do about it. But this is one of those situations when revealing your master plan isn't the best idea because six can always 
find a way to outwit what the village has planned for him. So they march down the same corridor several times from different angles <laughs> <laughs> on their way down to... Uh, it's, it's what I love seeing that. Every sci-fi show at one point has to have people running down the same corridors <laughs> from each direction several times. But they finally make their way down to the general's office. And at first you've got this uh, sort of study-like room, books lining the walls, you've got pictures of people in various different military uniforms that you can see in the background. Mm. It's all still hinting at it being some kind of military figure before the reveal occurs. And number two announces that there is no question the general cannot answer, from maths to philosophy to molecular structure, that the general can answer absolutely everything. And the professor is there and he's working away on his typewriter. He feeds another page of lectures into the funky machine and gets a punch card back in return. I can't remember, but I think in that in that moment, when the pe- when the page goes in, you see the counter move. Ah. So it is be count- So it is counting the number mm. of pages going in. And then we get the reveal where the curtain is pulled back very theatrically, mm. and there is the general, a giant supercomputer built by the professor. Did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, like I think going back to what you were saying earlier about you know crazy machines that they have in this. This is, I mean, this is a completely bonkers thing. This is a huge box which has reel-to-reel tape sections. It has it has all manner of things that you can press, twirl. You can feed things in. You can get things out. It's 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 one of those things that you. I think it reminds me most of some of the things that were used by mad scientists in those kind of 60s spy movies or even shows like Mission Impossible mm-hmm. and things where there was always some weird you know if there was a machine that's how it would look mm. it was clearly built against a wall and it was just peppered with features yes. that you could do almost like you know those uh, those toys you give uh, toddlers to play with those uh, those phones that have buttons and things you can pull on and things yeah. like that they're basically that it's a i mean it's they are nonsense machines completely but they they're just so wonderfully chaotic in 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 seemingly being thrown together by a prop department who are like yeah let's just stick things up here stick things up there let's put one of those do one of those yeah, yeah. there's always a real to real tape there has to be a real to real <laughs> tape in there somewhere yeah it's it's a wonderful thing and Number two mentions that the professor designed it, that he loves it, but probably hates it even more mm. because it's now effectively the reason why he's trapped. If he built this thing, he's the one who can make it function. Then they need him to not just deliver the lectures, but also to actually program the machine. And number two goes on to talk about how this is so revolutionary, it's going to get rid of tedious rote learning, even though it is literally rote learning. <laughs> And that you are given a uh, an answer and then you repeat it. He says, we've got a brilliantly devised course delivered by a leading teacher that subliminally learned, checked and corrected by an infallible authority. And then what have you got? A row of cabbages. Ah, but knowledgeable cabbages. <laughs> <laughs> and as, I guess that's what they want. They want cabbages who have whatever is deemed to be the correct knowledge. Hmm. It's strange because in its simplicity, you feel like it's such a blunt explanation for why they want this this machine to exist mm. and why they want speed learn. 
And that's almost how brutal the whole system is. It boils down to a simple means of brainwashing your population into becoming this homogeneous, well, the row of cabbages. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just become unable to question anything that is not presented to them as a question. They are unable to come up with answers that haven't been pre-scripted from them. They're unable to form opinions because everyone has the same opinion and they don't question anything because there is never a a differing viewpoint because they've only ever been presented with straightforward answers mm. to questions. Nothing has ever been complex if yeah. you've if you've learnt it by this means. Yeah, and in fact you can never even express the answer in a different way to yeah. somebody else. It has to be word perfect. Yeah, yeah. Even, even the subtleties in the choice of a word that someone might use has gone. Um, you know, it, it's com- it's command over language as well as content yeah. in a way. So fundamentally it's it's the I think given it's tied to the military aspects which are referenced and indeed the you know the name the general as well. Mm. I mean this is ultimately just a propaganda machine which doesn't even need to work hard because it's just putting the ideas in people's heads without without any effort at all which is the I suppose ultimately the on one hand a cruel aspect of the village not the first time we've seen that but also if you imagine that the village is hiring out uh, its residents these kind of experiments you realize that it, that the village has no real interest in protecting its own citizens it is just using them as guinea pigs which is again very sinister mm. but what i find fascinating is that number two brags about the information that the general has been programmed with so he says plato aristotle voltaire rousseau and the rest they're all available to the general <laughs> and clearly they've surrounded themselves with lots of very imposing looking books but ultimately, this is all human information. And the only information the general can have is information that is programmed into it by human beings and people who are choosing what information to program in. So who has decided that Plato, Aristotle, Voltaire and Rousseau are the important works that should be programmed into the computer? Mm. Who has decided who all the rest is of works that are worthwhile a machine learning in order to provide an answer you know all of these choices are made by humans who have deliberate or unintentional biases so everything that goes into the general is human therefore how can the general be infallible because if the general is deducting things by accessing the information that it has but that information has been chosen by humans as being the relevant information when i started trying to find out what happened in 1878 (laughs) the first thing i did was I went on Google and I typed in what happened in 1878. And, of course, the first page I got was the Wikipedia entry for historical events in 1878. And I looked at it, and guess what? It was a load of battles and treaties and political assassinations and all the kind of things that they would be doing in this. But that wasn't what I was interested in, so I had to keep digging to look at what scientific breakthroughs happened in in 1878 what important artistic works were created in 1878 you had to go looking for that because that's not what you're presented with if you google what happens in 1878 and i started thinking about all the information that google has has been put online by human beings 
and then other human beings have programmed Google's algorithm for deciding what information it's going to display on the first page. And everything on Wikipedia has been put on there by human beings. And I wondered, am I actually actually that different to someone who has gone through a speed learning course? That if you asked me what happened in 1878, like one chapter to the other at the cafe, my instinct was to ask Google, what happened in 1878? And then the first hit that it gives me is the information that I'm going to access to what happened in 1878. And I may not have been had that information burned onto my cortex for all time (laughs) but it was still something that I didn't realize I was doing instinctively until after I did it and then thought about it in those terms because of this episode that that was automatic and yet I'm old enough to remember being at school when Google didn't exist and you couldn't look at things on a computer and my parents had a giant big row of encyclopedias in a cupboard because that used to be a thing and if you wanted to know something, you would go and look in encyclopedia. But that was written by a person. And a lot of the stuff that was in those encyclopedias was wrong. And a lot of information was missing from those encyclopedias mm. anyway. Because someone had decided what events were important and what weren't. And what events are we actually going to present to people. So the ultimate flaw with the general, although I suppose from the perspective of the people who want to use it as a tool, it's not a flaw, it's an asset. It's not a bug, it's a feature. <laughs> is that it can only ever deduce things from the information that is programmed into it. And number two then demonstrates this perfectly when he has clearly now cottoned on that 12 is the co-conspirator. And so he says to the professor, you know, take down these facts. Here is the info we're going to present to the general and we're going to ask it a question. He says, uh, number one, uh, access to the projection room would have required a pass to get through number two passes are issued from the administration office and number three that number 12 works in administration and he says put down all those facts and then we're going to feed that into the general and then we're going to ask him and he he never gets to ask a question because number six interrupts the the question he's clearly going to ask is who is the co-conspirator but it's an answer that he he knows what the answer is that he wants back. And so he is presenting the general only with those data points, only with that information that will cause the general to then feed back the answer that he expects and wants and believes to be true. So there must be other people working in administration. There must be other people that number six has colluded with uh, in his time in the village. We know that he has. And yet this infallible machine is going to present the answer that number two wants and he's going to achieve that by only feeding the general with the data points that will provide that answer and it's no different to deciding which books of history or philosophy or politics or whatever is going to feed into the general for the general to actually put together these lectures yeah no it's very well put i i completely agree i think it's the illusion of authority that they're talking about mm. you know you know if you present this information and you say this is from the best source, then it must be correct. This is what you need to know. It uh, prevents people doing what people should do, which is what everyone else does do, which is the one difference to your analogy, which is even you know if you do Google something and it, it throws up one specific 
factoid or line of information, whether it's on Google or Wikipedia or whatever, you're not programmed to solely rely on that. Hmm. You instinctively would dig deeper to get the information that you are actually looking for. And you're able to discriminate between what is sufficient information, what is information that is necessary, that, that, that is a specific piece of information related to what you are asking. Um, you're able to actually basically critically evaluate that information and say, this is wrong, this is right, this is one perspective, this is not all the information, there is more to it. And here what they're doing is, under the guise of it being this magic bullet solution to to education, and I think there is still an element of them thinking about this as education rather mm. than brainwashing <laughs> for the purpose of military propaganda or you know or political gain from an educational perspective it it's just the lazy way of doing things it's saying the easiest way to prevent anyone questioning anything is to give everyone the same information with minimal context and that then keeps people completely oppressed because they don't have the urge or the curiosity to strive to find the answers that they should be looking for. It just keeps people in a state of feeling that the information they've got is correct and sufficient, when arguably it is incorrect <laughs> and woefully insufficient. Mm. And that, by extension, can you know, lead to problems associated with people working off the wrong information fake news <laughs> but number 12's bacon is saved but not for very long as we find out by number six interrupting before the question can be asked uh, he wants to ask a question of his own and he kind of goads number two into letting him do it by saying oh are you, are you afraid of the question that i might ask and you can see number two flinch but this challenge to his authority cannot stand because he has put it on the line that the general can answer any question. He can do anything. Therefore, why should he be afraid of a question that number six can answer? And you can see number six typed just three, three, four, four keys. Four keys. Four yeah. keys on the, on the typewriter. Doesn't let anyone look up what he's written while he's feeding it into the machine. So the text is, uh, is turned into one of these punch keys. And he asks for the punch key to be put into the general, which is obviously this giant computer. And uh, the professor takes the punch key, inserts it and turns it on or, you know, or, or gets it reading this information. Yeah, twiddles a few dials yeah. unnecessarily. <laughs> and it's clear that if you have a machine in which you've built in some kind of scale with a, a needle on it that says normal and danger on it, <laughs> that, that, that often means that you anticipate that uh, there is the potential for danger to come out of one of these things. And actually, 50% of the uh, of that scale is danger. Yeah. Um, you know, sub-25, everything is fine. 25, 50, it's danger. And immediately, uh, in only the way that they can actually turn a, a machine into a, into a living thing, it starts puffing smoke, uh, <laughs> it starts shutting down, and uh, it's unable to be stopped. You hear electricity crackling and things whizzing and popping and it just basically explodes electrocuting the professor uh, who is obviously holding on to it whilst he's trying to shut it off and also uh, number 12 as well 
Yeah, it, it seems rather fitting that at that point, half the people in the room are dressed as undertakers. <laughs> <laughs> dressed for the occasion. Yeah. And uh, so six takes out some of the military police. Uh, obviously, you know, 12 and the professor are unconscious, probably dead. Number two, completely crestfallen, asks six, what was the question that he fed into the general? Yeah. It's insoluble by man or machine. Why? Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a hokey thing, isn't it? That you destroy yeah. a machine by asking it too human a question yeah. that no one can answer. But poor old number two has failed miserably and he just repeats the question, why? Why? <laughs> and then we get an unusual coda at the end where silently you see number six going to tell Madame Professor that the professor is dead hmm. and she kind of sits down in grief. You don't normally see a scene like that at the end of an episode of The Prisoner. Normally it would end with, why? And then the bars would come over or something like that. It's quite an unusual ending. But indeed, it's it's also odd that, like you say, it's, it's quite a hokey ending in itself. Hmm. It turns out that what was going on was, you know, behind everything was, you know, a strange supercomputer that was the general that was being alluded to. <laughs> the fact that it was taken down by the question why. I mean, it, suddenly the the idea that you have this existential question being used as a means to undermine a machine which is there to give everyone a sense of purpose and being by making them feel like they know everything that there is to know. But ultimately it's a it's a weird ending. It feels like a very staple science fiction trope, almost. Mm. And yet, at the same time, I can't think of any ex any exact examples <laughs> of that. Um, but it but it does feel like to have a supercomputer behind the whole thing seems just very very bizarre an ending for an episode of The Prisoner. It almost seems too science fictiony, given that we haven't really had a sense of the general as a science fiction concept until this point. Yeah, I mean, it certainly explains why number two didn't buy number six's pretending to be Curtis saying he was going to go and report to the general mm. uh, in the Schizoid Man, because how is he going to report to a supercomputer underneath the, the village? I think there was an episode of The Avengers where there was some assassin who was killing various agents mm. and at the end it turns out to have been a supercomputer inside a factory mm. or something but i think that came after the general um i think that was a, a couple of years after the prisoner was on air i know before the prisoner in the early 60s there was an episode of the twilight zone called the old man in the cave and it was set in this uh kind of post-apocalyptic uh, society after a nuclear war where there's a, a, a small group of survivors living in this town and the kind of de facto leader of the town occasionally goes off to ask the old man in the cave where they should plant their crops, what food is safe to eat, where the radiation is bad, that kind of thing. And that there are some, I think some newcomers come to town who are implied to be the military in some capacity and they convince the people in the town to ignore the message that's come back down from the old man in the cave 
not to eat some food. So they all eat it, apart from the town leader who brought the message back, and they all die. And it turns out the old man in the cave was a computer, and that this guy was going up to the computer and asking it the questions about what was safe and what wasn't, and then bringing the information back down, but presenting it as, you know, information from this wise old dude who lived in the cave, not explaining that it came from a computer. And so in the end, the only people left alive are, well, that one guy, basically, <laughs> all on his own. Oh. And wasn't this also, now you mentioned it, the midpoint reveal in one of the recent Marvel movies? Was it one of the Captain Americas? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Is it, was it Winter Soldier? Was it Winter Soldier? Well, yeah, where it turns out that uh, Toby Jones, who was killed off in the first Captain America movie, is now, well, his mind is being placed in that computer or something. Mm. And it's like one of those things where you just see these... I mean, that that literally is a computer in a cave, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> um, but, the, but, yeah, no, I, no, I suppose now we're talking about it, there, there are cases where you have these plot lines where ultimately it was, it was a computer doing it all along. <laughs> um, in a strange way that... That idea kind of died a lot over the decades, probably since, because when computers were newish things, they were still supercomputers. They were giant things. They were they were, you know, the size of rooms, and there was a sense of scale to them and grandeur, mm. which is why I think computers became these things in TV of a certain era, as they became portable computers that you would have, or or home computers. Maybe they lost that element of it, and then the idea of malevolent computers only really picked up again with the early days of the internet mm. so there's there's that raft of movies in the probably very early 90s you know things like the net mm. um, you know all those all those kind of films warning about the dangers of 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 the interwebs um maybe they're just a reflection of of the same kind of fear that existed here which was the idea that a computer was nothing more than a means to process information. But actually the corollary of that would be that it would become a substitute for what information was in some respect. Yeah, and... you, you would take a shortcut. You would go straight from your question to the answer without going through the process of examining the evidence and searching through it and evaluating it instead it's like ask question step one ask question step two question mark question mark question mark mm. step three get the answer yeah. and you no longer know or see or sometimes even care what that middle bit is because the answer comes out and if that second wave of computing paranoia involved a fear of the internet i suppose we're entering that third age of it now which is all about artificial intelligence mm. so yeah i think i mean the other example i can think of now is uh that episode in the first series of the x-files ghost in the machine which was about you know a sentient computer mm. so actually there are there are these things which do often pop up with sentient computers doing things and in fact that that recent final series of the x-files we hope it's the final one anyway yeah. um where all of the um, kind of internet-enabled machines yeah. start. Yeah. What, what was that one called? You, you know the one it means. It's almost wordless. Um, but they, it, they're in the sushi restaurant, yeah. and there are no people working there. It's all it's all robots. Yeah, I think all. I mean, I think that's it. I mean, the the first era was the computer as a 
as a supercomputer brain. Mm. The next era was the internet. The third era will be the uh, the internet of things and artificial intelligence. I mean, these things keep popping up. And again, I think it's very prescient that this was in a show and dealt with as a mainstream episode of The Prisoner. Yeah. You know, they threw in a concept like this to see what would happen. Interestingly, it's not an episode about trying to break number six. It is an episode about a relatively hokey sci-fi concept. But to be honest, this might be one of the first times this kind of idea was done. Yeah. And uh, it only seems hokey in light of the last 50 years of television, (laughs) which have reused these concepts so many times. Yeah. And if you think about the idea of this information being burned onto people's brains so that they always give the same answer where you know you could go around the village and ask everyone in the village what happened in 1905 and they would all give you the same answer word for word you would then have you know in the past you could ask somebody that you'd probably get a lot of blank stares from people saying i have absolutely no idea what happened in 1905 but you get some people reaching back into their memories and thinking well i know a couple of things that happened but then to a great extent, there might all be different things that happened. Some people would probably tell you, I don't know, who won the the football league, or some people would tell you, was the football league even a thing about then? Yeah, it was. So it probably was. So, you know, some people would tell you of, a, of a, a book that got published, or some people would tell you of, you know, a battle that happened, or whatever their interests were. That's the response that they would come up with. But now. If you've got 100 people in a room who all have smartphones and you said to all of them what happened in 1905, they'll Google it. They will all give you the first answer because it's the same answer and it will be word for word because they all get the same answer from Google. Hmm. That is true. Although fundamentally, one other interpretation of everything that's happened is I'm pretty certain that when The Prisoner was filming... Next door, they were shooting 2001. <laughs> and clearly somebody got a look in at what Hal was doing and they thought, let's use this for the ending of the journal. <laughs> oh, instead of the green eye, it's the red eye. The staring red eye of Hal. Uh... What was the question? It's insoluble. A man or machine. What was it? W-H-Y. Question mark. Why? Why? So that was our ramble all about the general. Coming up next in these increasingly long episodes, <laughs> which are now running about three to four times the length of the actual episode we're talking about, we have a wonderful interview. We had the chance to chat again with Alex Cox, author of I Am Not a Number, Decoding the Prisoner, obviously also a legendary filmmaker, writer, director. And he was on the podcast for one of our 50th anniversary episodes in late September, early October last year. And he was talking about his book and his interest in The Prisoner. And it was really great to talk to him then. He was also at the Elstree event uh, earlier this year, where he was, again, talking about uh, his love of the show. This time, he is here to talk about his love of the episode The General. Yes. So... We spoke to Alex about where the general fits in in the overall story of The Prisoner. We talked a little bit about 
episode order because you can't get around it with the general, but also what the events of the general might tell us about whose side the village is on and what their aims mm. really are. So it, it was great talking to him again, and we hope you enjoy the chat. Information. Information. So we're delighted to welcome back film director and author of I Am Not a Number, Alex Cox. Hello, Alex. Hi. We spoke last year in our episodes for the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner. And one of the episodes that we talked about quite a bit in that discussion was The General. Yes. So we thought it'd be perfect to invite you back on to have a chat about it again. Where do you think The General sits in the prisoner overall in terms of how good an episode or how important an episode it is? Oh, I think it's a pretty good, I mean, I think it's a pretty good, pretty important episode, isn't it? I mean, because it tells us more about the village than we knew previously. Um, it, 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 It deals with the the nature of the village as an ongoing experiment where certain practices are trialed and in this case, it's speed learn. And so the village has become obsessed with this speed learn. A, uh, a new catchphrase has taken over from be seeing you. Instead, now everybody says good luck with your exams. <laughs> and it feels quite contemporary, doesn't it? It feels just like the kind of thing that, that, that you know, it's like a charter school in the United States mm-hmm. or, a, uh, or an academy in England. It's another educational scam that that the people behind the village are presumably hoping to make quite a bit of money off. It's interesting that uh, in earlier episodes, number twos in the village have shown number six uh, sort of the, the cleaner side of the experiment. They've, they've allowed him to observe what's going on and say, you know, these are the things we're doing. But what's interesting here is for the first time, number six is able to go behind the scenes and he sees the extent to which the infrastructure exists to uh, to perform these kind of strange experiments. And they're often involving uh, mind manipulation, mind yes. control, subliminal messages. Usually, yes, there's usually a mind control uh, subliminal aspect to, what's, to what they're doing in the village, usually, yeah. Do you think that this was something that uh, uh, McGowan was particularly interested in exploring in the series? Because it is, the, it is always coming up as the type of experiment which the village is, uh, is doing. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, he was aware, and obviously George Markstein was aware as well, that mind control was something that was of great interest to the intelligence agencies and to governments on both sides of the Iron Curtain. And uh, it's, not, it's not surprising that um, the people that run the thing or the people that develop projects to be, to be tried out in the village have come up with this educational philosophy or this educational technique so you do some teaching at university level what's your perspective on the way that this episode tackles not just the the concept of education but specific ideas about how people should be educated and the political drive behind them well when i was at school in england when i was at grammar school the the, we were told that our system was better than the french system say because the french system was was completely top down and the French education minister could like look at his watch at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday and say everybody right now is studying German you know in year three and we were told 
we have a better system because there's more, the schools are allowed a different degree of, uh, a greater degree of autonomy. But over the last 50 years, that's become less and less as testing has become more and more uh, in demand and impacted upon as a, as a means of gauging whether education is working or not. And as education is viewed more as a way of just producing compliant drones, compliant individuals who may or may not have a job but essentially they, they need to be educated up to a certain point but not beyond it. And I think that's the, that's the danger of speed learn, which McGowan's character isn't, isn't starting to point out, is that they're just, it's turning out, speed learn is turning out cabbages. Mm. But that's all the system needs is cabbages, just as our system today of charter schools and academies and all the rest of it really just exists to produce a compliant underclass. Hmm. So that there's very much a focus on um, imparting facts to the students in the episode. Yes. Um, but without any context, without any understanding of them, and with no alternative perspective challenging them either. Um, is is that in some ways the, the sort of dream situation for for some politicians to be able to um, dictate what the facts? Sh- should be that people learn. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, what the politicians want is a very compliant population where you say Russian and the population thinks bad, you know. You say American, the population thinks good. And essentially that's what we're getting anyway. I mean, we're, we're pretty much almost there thanks to a combination of, of inadequate education and a compliant media. But it certainly benefits... It certainly benefits politicians who don't want people to do any original thinking or to analyze, uh, to analyze data on their own behalf. Well, I think certainly there's also a sort of fear, from my perspective, it certainly seems to be worse now than it was in the past, but maybe I just was less aware of it in the past. A, a fear being stoked of what academics are teaching students, particularly in terms of the sort of stereotype of academics as being liberal and that they're teaching their students to be liberal, whatever that means. And it's, it's something that keeps cropping up in some of the media, certainly here again and again, where there's almost this sort of panic in some newspapers about lots of academics being anti-Brexit, for as, yeah. as if yeah. that's somehow surprising. Or necessarily a bad thing, but yeah, and I, and I, I think and it's interesting because in a, a way, I mean, this used to be and perhaps still is called well, not necessarily in terms of Brexit, but in terms of identity politics and in terms of how people of minority sexual status are treated. Um, there was this politically correct project where certain liberal values and certain liberal uh, approaches were widely disseminated. Um, on the other hand, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of in favor of it, even though, even though political correctness is a drag and identity politics ends up being a way of distracting people from, from what's really going on. But there's also a sort of politeness aspect, you know what I mean? In in academia, you can't go very far in an educational or even a political process if people are allowed to 
act in a disrespectful and bullying manner. And so, to a certain extent, you can see a rationale for political correctness uh, in that it makes the discourse more civilized and people aren't allowed to be really rude to other people on the basis of their their, their gender identity or, or their politics or their religion or whatever. So in that sense, you know, you can see a rationale. Um, but for someone who is a an ardent individualist such as number six, even that would be anathema, wouldn't it? Because the right to to be rude, the right to think outside the box, the right to refuse to comply is what number six lives for. Hmm. So, they're, so they're complex problems, aren't they? It's not, um, and you can certainly say that in a, in a sense, academia is a, a, a somewhat internationalist enterprise. So people in the academic world, people, you know, people who are university lecturers or, or teachers or whatever, or, are perhaps more likely to have an internationalist perspective to have collaborated with people in uh, in other countries, possibly to speak a foreign language, um, they're more likely to favor the positive aspects of the European Union, whereas um, you can take a different approach and say that, yeah, the European Parliament's great, but the European Commission is a deeply corrupt, capitalist, exploitative, undemocratic entity. And so both in an ideal academic world, both points of view would be heard, wouldn't they? Mm. But an ideal academic world doesn't exist, certainly not <laughs> in the village. We were we were thinking today about the comparisons with um, Brave New World, and um, in particular the what was it called? Hip Hypnopedia. Hypnopedia. Yeah. Teaching mechanism that's used in Brave New World, where people learn in their sleep, but that it it causes the same kinds of problems that you see in the prisoner where. People have facts at their fingertips, but have no real ability to do anything with them or contextualise them or, or even question who's presenting them with those facts. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, facts end up being an alternative to, to uh, truth. You know, facts. I mean, anybody, anybody can be a fact addict, addict. Anybody can marshal a certain number of facts to, to make any case. And so that's, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that the... Uh, I'm sure that the author of the script of the general was was familiar with Brave New World. Uh, to what extent do you think this episode reflects something that has come up in a few earlier episodes about it being unclear uh, which side the village and its intentions are actually on? I mean, Speedlearn itself, I mean, it's it's you know, it is a product of the village system. But actually, do you think that it also reflects uh, something about the discussion about, you know, which side of uh, of the Iron Curtain the village was actually on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think because obviously a, a project like Speed Learn is of benefit to authoritarian politicians and mind controllers east of the Iron Curtain and also west of the Iron Curtain. So, so unscrupulous politicians and capitalists are going to rally to, uh, to speed learn no matter what the ideology because it's in terms of creating a an unthinking and compliant superficially educated workforce um, I think though 
there's money to be made as well, isn't there? That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, with a project yeah. like Speedrun, <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's valuable intellectual property. So that suggests to me that, it, again, that the village is a Western project rather than an Eastern project, mm. uh, irrespective of the we find out where the, the village is located ultimately. But um, mm. just that, just that, there's there's such commercial value in this thing that it's unlikely to be the project of some some brutish commissar. <laughs> Yeah, what's the cost of a, a three-year degree here now? Is it twenty-seven thousand pounds, something mm. like that? So, so, so how much little? would you pay for it? In? Wow, that's <laughs> wow! I thought it was even more. It's not, nine thousand pounds a year is the nine thousand pounds a year. To, wow! To you know, in the states, kids are going through a three or four-year university course, and they're coming out owing like a hundred thousand dollars, hundred twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> so. So obviously, yes, speed learns a tremendous alternative to that because you're going to know the, all the events of the Hundred Years' War in in, in 15 minutes. <laughs> well, the, for me, the, the most sinister thing in the episode is the, the discussion that, I think this when all the guys are sitting around um, that in that kind of circular formation discussing it, and one of them mentions that with a couple of boosters, the information is indelible in the, in the mind. And and that was the bit that stuck with me the most, the idea that not, not only could you just impart instantaneous facts to people, but you could make it so that they can't remove those facts and the way yeah. they seem to automatically respond like robots with the yeah. correct answer from someone's mind. Yeah. And I mean, that's what they're trying to do in the village throughout the series with the, there's the episode with the Lobo men, you know, all the guys who've been lobotomized, you know, and, it's this, and, and, and the constant threat to number six that he's going to end up that way if he isn't compliant. Mm. Yeah, it's mind control, isn't it? The obsession with mind control and with, with being able to order people's thoughts, mm. which obviously was something that was deeply troubling to Magoon and to and also we see two thirds of the way through the episode that uh, before the reveal of the of the uh, general actually that there seems to be the appearance of uh, military style police involved in the village for the first yes, time which is also quite a sinister changed. aspect something's yeah. changed in the village hasn't it because the white yeah. helmets have appeared yeah whereas previously security in the village has been down to the guys in the stripy shirts yeah the 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 rover cult but now the yeah yeah these kind of nato looking guys have shown up um, yeah it's white hats and top hats yeah <laughs> and do, what does that mean also fenella fielding's voice has disappeared and instead there's a guy talking on yeah. the loudspeaker yeah. system in the village has there been a change of administration hmm. you know uh, is 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 fenella in another village somewhere else a prisoner herself you know and and where did all those white hats come from so it's interesting that something seems to be there's there's been a perhaps there's been re regime change in the highest echelons above the village mm -hmm. and and then guns start to appear where we haven't yeah. seen guns before and so. the, the new announcer i think is the first time that there's an American accent in the village, and it and it, it makes those announcements about speed learning sound like very kind of upbeat 
commercials really almost sort of like your daily infomercial hey come and do your three minutes of e-learning it's great yeah and it's funny because i used to I, I i when i was in liverpool i was working in liverpool for a few years and i was involved with um liverpool community college and they had on their on, on their you know if you called up their answering machine or their or, or or checked out their schedules they had the guy doing it with like a fake american accent um, <laughs> because it seemed more credible you know oh yeah you know <laughs> Education, you know, cutting edge education. The guy's got to talk like an American. So it's also interesting in terms of the prisonerism of it all that this, I think, is is one of the few episodes which was actually prefigured in a previous episode. Where um, is it? Uh, Schizoid Man. Um, yes. Yeah, the conversation with number two and six near the end. Yeah. They have a conversation about the general. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and McGowan puts a foot wrong because he refers to the general. He he says something like, "I'm going to, I'll see him." And, and number two goes, oh, "I don't think you'd be able to do that." <laughs> so there. So it's interesting that they're actually there. Wa- there were at times the, the the series really does does reference something that's going to happen in the mm. future in the series, which is. Always for if you're a prisoner enthusiast, it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Also, one one of the things I find really startling about this episode is I I mean he, he might be lying, but the moment when Number Two seems to offer Six his freedom if he'll give back the recorder, as yes. if this is so valuable that they would even let him go. Yes, that's why I think there's money involved. Because. <laughs> <laughs> There's, some, there's a lot of money to be made out of this thing, so they're even prepared to offer Number Six his freedom. Would they really give it to him? Of course, as you say, that's a different question. Are they very possibly Number Two is lying? But he's a new Number Two, and he has different priorities. And maybe for him, Number Six has ceased to be so important. You know? Where do you stand on the question of whether this is before or after A, B, and C? Let me see. Well, I just go by as, what I, as far as I can tell is the order in which the episodes were shot. And it's a little hard to come up with that list because the episodes were shot partially. Mm. You know, they'd shoot the Port Marion bits and then they'd go to London and they'd shoot the, some more of that stuff in Elstree. But then maybe they'd go back, they'd send Frank Maher back to just shoot an insert at Port Marion. So, so it's hard to say exactly the order in which the episodes were made, but as far as I can, as far as I could tell from just like you know trying to figure it out, um, A, B, and C was shot immediately after the general. Do you think so? Yes, I mean certainly there's there's the well well from the opening bit even um, uh, Colin Gordon who's the number two in these uh, episodes. He is he's the new number two in the general, but he's just number two in uh, in a b and c and there are lots of moments when it seems like uh, in a b and c he seems to have been given a second chance to uh yeah. to try and break number six potentially yeah. after the failure of uh, of an earlier of an earlier attempt yeah i think that makes especially in in terms of his character you're right it makes a lot more sense that a b and c would follow would follow the general yeah also it's it's fun to spot the reuse of the sets because some of the sets where the professor um, and madame professor are the sets from madame angadine's party yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's that french villa you know the garden of the french villa you know yeah, uh, yeah which appears in several episodes yeah and of course because it's a dream you know madame angadine's house could indeed be you know 
um, number six is it's just is just revisiting that place. Hmm. Also, an interesting thing that they 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 make they make the, the they make that that replica of the professor. Yes, yes. And put it in the bed, um, which I in some way ties into the idea that the village is creating clones of people or yeah. or is able to replicate a human face on a living person hmm. as they do in uh in schizoid man hmm. um but that's never really developed i never then we never really get to the end of what are they doing by cloning these people or hmm. or developing multiple versions of the same person or or just making a making a replica of the of, <laughs> of, of the professor so that so that number six could smash it with his cane. <laughs> yeah, I, I never really understood the purpose of of making that effigy of him just to be like like for whose benefit did they were they making that? I yeah, I don't see the purpose of it either because if they want to have somebody else, you know, to represent the professor while he's been worked to death in the basement, why not just clone him? Have a yeah. have a you know have a guy going around who looks just like him. Hmm. Um, but that never really gets developed in the series. It's, it's all hinted at in those in the first three episodes, and then and then and then it comes to fruition in Schizoid Man, and then and then possibly in in, in is at the end is a is a is a clone of Number Six, or the man in the Number One uniform, or the ape in the Number One uniform, whatever it is. <laughs> You've been using episodes of The Prisoner as part of this international film series. There's a, yes, it's a, it's a, a, a Boulder, Colorado, where I used to teach. They have this uh, repertory theatre, and so we're going to do two. We're going to do two nights for our show, an episode, and show some clips, and talk about some of these things. Talk about the, the you know, the the village of a cloning a cloning camp, um, and talk about the the women characters and the way that that McGowan's desire that number six not have a girlfriend created this very interesting series of women characters who mm. who didn't get saddled with having to be the hero girlfriend you know yeah. instead they get to be like you know number two or a torturer you know, <laughs> you know which is much more interesting yeah it, it almost forces the writers to come up with something original because you can't fall back on there's a female villager and they have a will they won't they romance going on which is the default thing yeah, that yeah. would normally be put in there and also sometimes the scripts were written for men and um but, but the casting director would hire a woman instead hmm. um which obviously Magoon was in favor of and so that gets very interesting then you know that um characters who are who are written as as male in the scripts are, are cast as women which is very forward very forward and very correct. And which episodes will you be uh, showing clips from as you're doing this course? Oh, um, I'm, I'm showing all. I'm showing the three different versions of the opening sequence. Okay. You know, the very long one from uh, Arrival, and then the, and the shortened, the, the, the early shortened version, and then the shorter version, which which followed it. So I'm, I'm showing. I'm going to show those. I'm going to show the scenes where people are doubled up. Mm. Uh, and appeared more than once. Um, showing showing the uh, the introduction of Nigel Stark when he mm. played number six uh, in Do Not Forsake Me or My Darling, and showing two complete episodes, showing uh, 
free-for-all and schizoid man. And uh, do you know if the audience have had exposure to The Prisoner before, or, or are you presenting it fresh to them? I would imagine that um, the people who have had exposure to The Prisoner before are most likely to come. <laughs> because people who don't know anything about The Prisoner well, why would they go? <laughs> so I'm hoping that in spite of that, you know, some, that, that somebody will read something about it in the Boulder Weekly or, or in a class, their professor will say, hey, you've got to go and check out this Cox talking about this series, you know, which is very cool. Um, but I, I imagine that probably it, it will be at least 50% prisoner uh, aficionados. And uh, if anyone misses the course, will you be offering a... Uh... A speed learn alternative for them. <laughs> I, they, you, what, there's a guy who I've seen, I've, I, I forget his name now, but he does a very interesting series of talks about the Beatles and about the creation of the Beatles albums. Uh, he talks about the White Album, Revolver, mm. and Sgt. Pepper. Uh, and, 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 and they deconstruct them, you know, how they were made, you know, how they were recorded and how they, how they tried to slave together these two uh, four-track tape recorders with not with not much success um and it's very very interesting and so in a way and he goes on he tours university campuses in the u.s doing this doing his beatles lectures so i suppose in my declining years you know i could try and become the the prisoner lecturer you know <laughs> and go and, and do my own little speed learn thing around around college campuses but it's a lot of traveling you know and i miss the dog you know so probably i won't it's, it's funny you mentioned the Beatles because it just reminded me of something I was reading earlier about um, was it Revolver, mm. and the, uh, which was what, a couple of years before the Prisoner, and yeah. the use of um, back backtracking is it called when they're put, putting things backwards into music. Oh, yeah. so one, yeah. one of the things the general kind of reminded me of was all that that sort of panic about hidden messages in music, in film, and in the influence on people. Yeah, and there is this sort of weird Beatlesy thing going on around the edges of of the prisoner. Um, there's, you know, the, in the end we have all, you know, the massacre takes place to all you need is love in the final episode, and um, it's interesting. I mean, it's uh, there was there was a lot of creative ferment at that time, and McGowan was certainly aware of it, you know, and interested in it even while he was still ploughing his own very unique furrow, you know, which nobody ever did anything like it. But I think there's a, I think in a certain sense that they're, they're, uh, you know, they're sharing similar interests. Are you planning on writing any more prisoner-related work? I don't think so. I think I've written everything I can about the prisoner. I mean, I, I, these are, uh, my, my book is My Conclusions About the Prisoner. Mm-hmm. And the good thing is, is that it's it's finite. You know, there are seventeen episodes mm-hmm. uh, to discuss. You know, and I've discussed them, and that's what I think. You know, and it's and the interesting thing is, it's just that's just what I think, and somebody else can can look at the series and just based entirely on what is within the episodes, reach entirely different conclusions, which shows what an extraordinary work of art it is. So with that, we'd like to say thank you, Alex, for joining us for our chat about all things The Prisoner and The General. It's been a pleasure, as always, to have you on. It was a pleasure talking to you, too. Thank you very much for your continued enthusiasm and interest in this wonderful thing. 
And I suppose as it's an episode about the general, the only way to end it is uh, by signing off by saying best of luck in your exams. Best of luck in your exams. Information. Information. So we'd like to thank Alex Cox for joining us again for our ramble about uh, The Prisoner and The General. Uh, If you haven't read it, we strongly recommend you getting your hands on a copy of his book because it's a really interesting take on uh, how The Prisoner potentially could be viewed and what Alex's view is of such fundamental questions about the show as what number six's real job was, what the function of the village was. And uh, what he's done in his book is not just do a straightforward episode guide, but he's he's tried to look at the show in the context of the production order in which the show was made in order to get a better sense of how there may be a uh, chronology to the events in the show and potentially some themes that jump out that relate to uh, what the show was really all about. And it's just a a really interesting take on the material as well. And uh, I think for me, what I found reading it was it was really nice to read a book by somebody 50 years after the show was on that has actually, uh, whether you agree with that way of looking at the show or not, a completely fresh perspective on, on the whole thing. And if you like that chat with Alex, uh, we strongly recommend you dig back through our old episodes to find our interview with Alex from the end of last year. Yeah. And coming up next, we've got our usual news roundup from Rick Davey of the Unmutual website, who's going to fill us in on everything that's happening in the world of The Prisoner. This is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. The first guests have been announced for Not A Number, a Patrick McGowan retrospective, a charity fundraising tribute evening dedicated to Patrick McGowan's career to be held at Elstree Studios. Jane Merrow, who starred in three episodes of Danger Man before appearing as Alison, number 24, in the Prisoner episode The Schizoid Man, will take part in an on-stage Q&A about her time on both series. As will movie director John Huff, who directed McGowan in the 1978 film Brass Target. Many more guests will be confirmed over the coming weeks for what promises to be an unforgettable evening of on-stage interviews, special screenings and other attractions. For more details and to buy tickets for the event, which takes place on Saturday, June 23rd, visit theunmutual.co.uk. In other event news, to tie in with the Not A Number event, Dave Lally will be conducting a tour of film and TV locations, including some seen in The Prisoner, the following day in Borehamwood on Sunday the 24th of June. More details will be posted on the Unmutual website in the coming weeks. In other news, part one of Titan's new The Prisoner comic is now on the shelves, with various cover variants available. Reviews are already online for the new comic, from luminaries such as cartoonist Lou Stringer and Jason Whiten of Spy Vibe. Check out the Tally Ho podcast website for details of a special podcast featuring interviews with some of the team behind the comic. The classic detective series Columbo has been re-released on DVD in North America. The series features several episodes starring Patrick McGowan or directed by him, for which he won several Emmy Awards. 
And finally, Radio 4's Kitchen Cabinet series came from Port Merion earlier this month. Check out the BBC iPlayer to listen to the episode. Join me again on the next Tully Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Be seeing you. Thanks, Rick, for a great update on what's going on. We'll actually be at the Elstree event in June, at the end of June. Yeah. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. The last event was really cool as well. And uh, we're really excited to find out who's going to be announced as guests over the coming weeks and certainly what kinds of things are going to be going on. Um, they're always really fun events and it's good to kind of catch up with lots of people who are really interested in uh, The Prisoner. And in this case, uh, notably people who are really interested in Patrick McGowan and his work outside of The Prisoner as well. Yeah, so if you are coming to the Elstree event in June uh, and you see us, do come and say hi. We're not pixelated in real life, but you'll probably recognise us. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at TFCAA or on Facebook at Time for Cakes and Ale or on our website, timeforcakesandale.com. And if you go there, you'll find another episode that we put out just two days ago, which is all about the Titan comic the Prisoner series that started well, today, I suppose, by the time this episode goes out, uh, where we had a chat with the editor, David Leach, and the legendary comics writer, Peter Milligan, who have put together this comic. And it was great to chat to both of them about how the comic came about and why they both really love The Prisoner. So that's on the website. And along with that, we've also got a Q&A on the website with Colin Lorimer, is the artist who has done all the artwork for the new The Prisoner series. So thank you to everyone who is listening to these episodes of The Tally Ho. It's great that we're putting these episodes out and we're getting lots of people getting in touch and saying how much they're enjoying them because we really enjoy putting them together. Uh, we love getting your feedback. We love your ideas, your theories and anything else you have to say about the world of The Prisoner. If you do enjoy these episodes, please subscribe to the podcast and if you get it through somewhere like iTunes, which allows you to leave a review, please leave a nice, happy, friendly five-star review for us <laughs> because it really helps uh, get the word out about the show to everyone who might be looking for more prisoner-related material. Yes. And of course, you can also check out our other podcast, which is our main Time for Cakes Now podcast, which is about general pop culture-iness. And there's also our Twin Peaks podcast, Time for Cherry and Coffee, in which we had a very in-depth look at the most recent season of Twin Peaks from last year. Yeah, and all of this can be found under Time for Cakes and Ale, which is our mothership podcast uh, brand, I suppose. <laughs> but for now, signing off from the Tally Ho podcast, good, good luck, luck with, with your, your exams!